This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Doing what we can on this program every day, three hours a day, to give you the tools, the information you need to grow a healthier, happier life. Top of the morning to you. I'm losing my voice. I had class last night, and let me just tell you, I was I was on fire. For a guy that was completely exhausted, it was the funnest class I've ever taught. There's the ding. That means breakfast is ready. Hey, um, here's the deal. Today we are going to be talking with Dr. John Torres about um, about college and liberal bias. Would you say that the universities in America are liberally skewed? What would you say, Terry? I would say it would depend on not like the not the entire university. Yeah, there are certain classes and certain disciplines that would lead to that leading that direction. Sure. Others. I, I would imagine aren't necessarily one way or the other. I mean, it's a history class or, you know. Right. But, well, I mean, but who knows? It could be. It depends on the teacher. But it's, and you've heard some of the classes that they offer at universities and you're like, what? Like some of those are just weird. Yes. I won't even get into the names of some of them. They're just not appropriate. <laughs> They're just not appropriate. <laughs> this is for family. This is family radio. But there's always been, it seems like, a lot of the movements start on a college campus, right? Like a, yes. like a civil rights movement, the feminist movement, the hippie movement. I mean, these things started at that age. So is it, is it, are, are the professors the ones skewing it liberal? Or is the simple age group of college students just more liberal? But wouldn't a college lean more to a liberal stance in the sense that they're trying to teach new concepts, right. trying to teach new ideas, expose students to, to ideas, concepts they're not the, used to, something they hadn't maybe well, grown up with. We've had a guest on the show, and the basic definition of liberal means new, change, creating something new and changing. Conservative would mean you would conserve the thoughts, the ideas, the concepts. So, yeah. At a university where you're trying to be on the cutting edge, you would think it would be more liberal-minded. It's interesting, though. BYU is very conservative, except there are professors that are more liberal in their mindset. And so even at BYU, there's a, a pretty broad expanse between the two, right? There's there's an abundance of right. both. Except BYU liberal is not probably the same as Berkeley liberal. No. <laughs> even though they both start with B. So a little different. Today we're going to be talking with um, a professor that's actually done some of the research. It's hard to get this information because, I mean, a lot of college professors aren't used to being questioned like that. I've had this sort of discussion with uh, with my father when I was in college. When you were, when you mean in, back in your liberal party days? Back in my liberal par- party days. Yeah. And and he was talking. I mean, the idea of of these liberal colleges changing kids' minds and. And these sorts of ideas that are that are out there, a lot of political ideas of why the younger generation leans liberal. Well, it's because their their colleges and professors are corrupting them. <laughs> they're they're like, sowing their oats. Well, what are you expecting when they go to college and they try to learn something new? Right. Maybe you've taught them this way. They're learning yeah. something different, and they're you know different ideas at the time of change, a time of 
embracing ideas, and and then you try to figure out from that point on who you are as a person. Right. You're, you're trying to yeah. You're figuring out the you. Now here's the deal. We all know it's the rock and roll music. Of course, it's always rock. It's and the roll. music that's doing it. Um, anyway, we'll find out. We'll find out what it really is. Also, um, we got to talk. Everybody's got a book now. I don't. Well, I mean, everybody that's somebody oh what? has Thanks. a book. Sorry, guys. Um, got I, mean, I have there. a book, but no big deal. But, um, but uh, soon, soon Jeb, later down the road, maybe another book. I've got, in fact, I've got four books in the works. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay. But I have to I have to write them. Mover and shaker. Mm-hmm. I try to dictate on my drive here. I'm really getting good at, at putting all of my punctuation in just by dictation. Going off of yesterday's guest, you were attempting your thought leadership. That's exactly what I was doing. I'm trying to create content <laughs> and be a thought leader. Um, now, why I'm saying this, Jeb Bush has a new book. He does. Uh, Jeb will fix it? They all do. Car- Car- Carson has a book. He's on a book tour. Yes, he is. That guy can sell 4,000 books in one night, which you may not know, but like the average book sells about, like, I think, 90 books. There's 300,000 books yeah. a year that are produced. It's a little crazy. So the average one sells 90 books. You know, that's about your circle of influence, your family, extended family, friends. But Je- or, uh, Carson can sell 4,000 books. Hmm. Trump's, you know, got another book. He's got a book out. He even talks about it. But what I'm wondering, what, and I just heard a really great interview about Jeb. Here's my deal with Jeb. He, he is a great, great guy. He's just a great guy. But we're not voting for great guys, I guess. No. We're not even... Apparently in the polls, I mean, and what's his name? Carson is a great guy, like phenomenal. But everyone's like, well, yeah, but he can't be the president. But we trust him. That's one of the things people trust him because he's so nice. And they trust Jeb, except he's dropping in the polls. Well, he keeps doing things and saying well, things. Yeah. But, but I mean, again, ruining images. So one of the things we got to figure out is what do you want for president? So if you had to choose trust, somebody you trust. And that's kind of a tricky thing because to me, trust is two things. Character. I got to trust your character. You're honest. You're decent. But I've also got to trust you're competent. Right? So you got to have character and competency in there. And I'm not sure if there's a candidate that has it all. Has it all. On any side. Because if if they're competent and they can show competency, you don't don't trust their character because it might seem sort of fake. I mean, every, every candidate, you can go through it and say, do I trust their character? They seem honest. Oh, except for that. Yeah. Or, no, yeah, they're totally honest, except... They can't they, talk into a microphone. That's right. Yeah. They can't communicate their point. But Jeb's a grinder. We learned last week it's Jeb a is a grinder. But he, again, he, he must not know the millennials, because the millennials think grinding is something completely different. Yes. It's hard. So I'm going to keep looking. I'm going to keep looking until I find him. Uh, let's go to the headlines and find out what's going on around the world. Terry? Sad news today. Illinois law enforcement has reportedly determined that a police officer who was whose death was being investigated as a murder was in fact a suicide. Fox Lake, Illinois, police officer Joseph Galinowitz was found dead in the woods in the lakeside community on September 1st. 
Galenowitz radioed that morning about three suspicious-looking men, then was found fatally shot in a remote marshy area. No evidence of the three men ever turned up. The medical examiner for months said he would determine the cause of death, suicide, or homicide upon receiving further information from the police. Citing multiple sources, Chicago TV station WGN is reporting investigators plan to release a criminology report today that reveals Galinowitz was allegedly using police department money for personal purchases. The suicide allegedly followed calls to help audit missing police money. So that uh, press conference later today should shed some more light on that. But there was a, a big manhunt, a lot of resources put mm. into trying to find these three individuals. Ugh. And it turns out it was a suicide. Uh, Federal regulators will levy as much as a $200 million fine against Takata, the Japanese manufacturer of faulty airbags. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration said Tuesday it will issue a $70 million penalty to the company for its failure to disclose defects in a timely manner. Transportation Secretary Anthony Fox on this story. We are holding Takata accountable for its actions. We are imposing the largest civil penalty in NHTSA history. We are imposing additional oversight, including an independent monitor to help oversee the company's conduct. We're requiring significant changes in the company's safety practices and culture. The company's airbags have come into question after 12 automakers have recalled more than 19 million vehicles with the safety devices since 2008. Eight deaths and over 100 injuries have been linked to the defective airbags that can rupture violently, sending shards of metal flying through the passenger cabin. So that's really not what you want mm. out of your airbag. People no. have been injured. It hits them. They And that's Takata Company, not yes. Takata. Uh, there's a beer company in Mexico. Yeah, it's not They're that. They're different companies. It's a different company. Unless they did converge at one time. So That's sad. Okay. A nearly 18-month legal battle that drew national attention. Houston voters rejected an ordinance on Tuesday that would have established non-discrimination protection for the gay and transgender community. Voters opted to repeal the Houston Equal Rights Ordinance, which spells HERO, which not only offered non-discrimination protections for gender identity, sexual orientation, but also banned discrimination against sex, race, disability, age, religion, and other categories. The measure was first approved in May of 2014 by the city council, but opponents launched a lawsuit to have residents vote on the ordinance, and it was overturned. Hmm. So that's it's interesting there. In Florida, parents are currently fighting for mandatory recess in their children's schools. They're calling on the school board to give their children 20 minutes of recess a day. Earlier this month, Polk County, Florida, had a similar fight. Nearly 3,000 signed a petition asking for at least 20 minutes a day of recess. The state of Florida requires 150 minutes of physical education a week, but there are no requirements for recess. you got to have recess. So the parents are going in saying they're begging, we want recess. That's the only reason I went to school. That's the only reason I got through school. I was so mad when I got to high school and or uh, junior high and there was no recess. I think we had two different recess periods. Ah, it's the best. One early and one at lunch. That's right. Then then I love the smell. Nothing better than the smell of a classroom after recess. That just sweat, sweaty kid smell. (laughs) Mm. Gross. Gross stuff. Okay, good stuff. Um, really interesting uh, Interesting. what's going on in, in the world all over, right? When we uh, come back, we're, we're going to take a break. We'll come back. We're going to uh, take on this idea th- about liberal bias in our colleges. And, and really, is it, is it the teachers? Is it the, are the professors the problem here? 
uh, are the professors skewing the tender minds of these students? I mean, I work with a bunch of students and like Ben, for example. I mean, I'm messing him up. He is not the same guy he was when he started the show. I've had to double my therapy since I started That's right. working here. But I'm not making you more liberal. No, it's just emotional damage. Okay, good. Well, as long as I'm not messing up your liberal brain. Anyway, we're going to be talking about that. Uh, the myth of liberal biased college campuses. Is it a myth or is it reality? Stick with this. We'll have more up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, um, every one of us has a tendency to to basically make up the information we need and to make it up when we need it, how we need it. And so we'll, we call those, you know, cognitive distortions. And, and we do it, all humans do it one way or another. You know, you tend to see what you want to see. You tend to see what you think you need to see. Um, but if any of you have been a, a college student, you know, out of high school, you you know that your brain was in a completely different place when you were in when you were going to college. You were there, maybe trying to test the waters to to see who you really were, find out who you really are, and so that might uh, be impacting how all of us look back and and look at uh, colleges and universities. For years, conservative proponents have argued that there's a dominance of liberal-minded professors and administrators at universities, and it's led to stifling free speech and thought on campuses. However, there are many who disagree, stating that the student and colleges are not permanently affected by any perceived bias, but rather evolve and form opinions independently. In fact, our guest today, Dr. John Torres from LaGrange College, wrote an article titled The Myth of the Liberal Biased College Campus that argues the conservative premise of inequality. Dr. Torres is here to talk uh, with us. On, he's actually online about the debate of liberal biased college campuses and uh, are they really stifling free speech on these campuses. Dr. Torres, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you very much. Uh, just a full disclosure, when I was a kid, I worked at the Sun Bowl, and I saw many uh, BYU versus UTEP games. Did you so, see them? Uh, I always had BYU on the radar. That's it. So and you always knew. That's great. Oh, great. And, uh, John, talk to us about your this article you wrote. I, I loved it because, again, I think a lot of us tend to be fairly biased, especially you know, you, you hear certain things about these college campuses and those crazy liberal classes that they're teaching these kids. And we a lot of people believe that the universities are biased and driving people to become driving the students to become more liberal. But your your article counters that. I definitely disagree with that notion. I, I won't discount that there are uh, professors who have liberal or conservative uh uh, ideologies, right, and in some rare cases, biases. Which I think that if you are biased against a student, if you grade a student down for your beliefs, you should get out of the profession. Yeah, that's not uh, working. No matter what it is, I think that's something we definitely agree on. Is it? Um, 
but it seems like to me, you you correct me, but it seems like to me a university would maybe more naturally lean more liberal, liberal, um, just simply because of the fact that they're they're trying to change, create change or new thinking. They're constantly on the cutting edge of thinking. So is it is it not inherent our, in the system? Uh, oh yeah, one of our uh, we have like the three C's uh, that. LaGrange College uh, stands for, and they have creativity, communication, and critical thinking. Mm. And it's that term critical thinking gets people pretty angry. I read somewhere where Texas was even trying to ban critical thinking uh, from the classroom. I kept thinking, well, if so, you would never have a Tea Party because the Tea Party is basically critical thinking, not only about Democrats, but uh, mainstream Republicans. Isn't that true? And and so maybe this whole thing is – I mean, to ban the concept of cr- critical thinking when it's it's actually one of the great things that keeps us alive and surviving, right? So we don't keep drinking the Kool Aid, hypothetically. Um, hey, talk to us about your some of the research you found because there there have been some studies on universities and campus universities. What what does the actual data say about uh, the balance of liberal versus, I guess, conservatism? Okay, sure. Um... When I was or in the writing of this, for example, you go to the Internet. That's what most people do, I think. And I looked at Conservapedia, and they said, oh, yes, there's massive bias. And here's where you can find it on this site. And I clicked on the site, liberaleducation.com, and it was like uh, selling me a web link for uh, a little over $2,000. Oh, wow. There is uh, – the the first study I'd seen on the subject came out shortly after t- the 2004 election, and this is very important uh, for one reason. Now, you and I would know if you'd say, well, how did that person vote, Democrat or Republican? Well, we're not supposed to know, right? It's a right. private ballot. So how would they know that someone voted Democrat or vote Republican? Well, what they looked at is in 2004, who voted in a particular primary, Democrat or Republican? Hmm. And that's where the data came from. Well, of course, if you know the 2004 election, for George W. Bush, it was a cakewalk on the Republican side. Right. So very few people turned out for that. And a lot of people voted in the Democrat primary uh, for Kerry or Edwards or Wesley Clark or um, the Screamer, Howard Dean. Or <laughs> the <laughs> Screamer. And, and uh, what was interesting is when I told this to my students, when we were investigating liberal media bias and liberal college bias, they were like – I had a very conservative student who said, well, that, hey, I voted in that for the weakest Democrat. And they're claiming I'm a Democrat. Well, <laughs> according to their data, you are. Yeah. You know, it doesn't mean you actually are a Democrat or Republican. If you ran the same study in 2012, you would find a lot of people vote on the Republican side because the Democrat side was Obama and not, nobody else. So it wasn't very interesting. Right. So so really th- their data is not – it's not very supportive or substantial. It's just – it's they, they need better studies. Oh, yeah. Now, for students themselves, uh, and I think there's a reason for it. I was at a Halloween party, and um, it was for where my wife teaches at a uh, – it's pretty much the wealthiest private school in town. And there were a lot of parents there who are definite Republicans. They all can't stand Hillary Clinton. They were stunned to learn when they asked me about the students. I said, oh, yeah, they're about two-thirds conservative. And they just could not hmm. believe it. They couldn't fathom it. They're like, how, how is that possible at a liberal arts college? Right. Well, it is. And I think there's a reason for it. Uh, it's not so much what we're teaching or the ideology. As you mentioned early, this is about students and critical thinking. And they're coming at a time where they're questioning lots of things. Who is the leader of our country, Barack Obama? Well, uh, not only are his flaws magnified, 
but it's also a time where you're saying, hey, we're not going to listen to everything just because uh, Barack Obama said it. And so they're at a more questioning age. So this is uh, one of the more conservative times I've seen students. It's um, it, 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 it. Every kid, it seems like, goes through that. And they they're It seems like to me you're going to go. You might take some classes. You might even take them from a professor that, you know, is a little bit more extreme or more liberal. Um, but in the end, too, you also know what you're comfortable with and what jives with who you are. So you might be stretched more to an extreme, but it seems like in the end, when we're out of college, we start making our own money, paying our own taxes, doing all of these things. It seems like you eventually find where you want to be. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's the old adage of uh, Winston Churchill. You know, if you're uh... If you're conservative at a young age, you have no heart. And if you're liberal at an older age, you have no brain for the very reasons he suggested. Because, That's true. Uh, you know, you start paying the bills and taxes become a bigger weight on you. And so you start thinking, oh, wait a second. <laughs> is it is is it is there a reason? I mean, and you tell me as a professor in the news and maybe it's just because we're shining the great media light on these weird extremes examples. But it, every once in a while, you'll have some class on some topic that is so extremely liberal. Oh, um, you're, I, I bet you you're referring to uh, Florida Atlantic University, which always seems to make the news for some. Yeah, like some crazy uh, extreme uh, class. Where the person, the instructor told everyone to write Jesus on a piece of paper, stomp <laughs> on it, and everyone That's did. it. That's a way to get your uh, school on Yahoo News, uh, especially if your football team's not very good. That's uh, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you're down in Florida. I mean, that, that's you know, it, and, and you see that. What the heck is he doing? Well, it turned out there was, uh, he was teaching from a Christian textbook, and that was like one of the suggested activities. Oh, from I the book. how good this book is, and I, I, I would question it myself. But mm-hmm. uh, they were trying to get people to say, look, at, this is what is being done in society. And eh, I bet you even a few conservatives would agree with that. I'd never do that as a lesson plan because I just, I just don't think it's uh, – the point of it is very academic. Is there um, – do you sense – like I was even sitting there thinking that today, you know, Jeb Bush, well, he's a great guy, may not be a great president, but is a great guy. He needs to go be a university president somewhere. And then I thought uh, – then I thought, well, which university? What university would take a Jeb Bush? It would have to be a conservative university. Are, are conservative institutions – Shrinking? Are we having more of them, less of them? What do you see there? Actually, you're seeing a lot of conservative administrators, like uh, Bush's education secretary, Margaret Spelling, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the people we attribute No Child Left Behind Act to. She is the – she's overseeing the entire University of North Carolina system. We had Condoleezza Rice was a provost at Stanford beforehand. Now, they're a fairly conservative school. Uh, you have at my alma mater, Florida State, uh, they selected a Republican state senator to be the uh, university president. Hmm. And, and so, you know, you'll you'll have uh, was it uh, Bush's secretary of defense um, or yeah, Bush uh, W. Bush, George W. Bush, and Bush senior CIA director Robert Gates was president at Texas A and M University. So it actually seems like uh, Jeb Bush uh, probably should have been thinking about University of Florida after he left being governor. That's right. That would have been a good gig. Well, um, when you when you look at it, uh, John, and you see these these students that are maybe just I, mean, I don't even know that liberal and conservative are the best because this is a spectrum, right? So, I mean, liberal at BYU, we were joking earlier, is different than liberal at Berkeley. Oh, yeah. Uh, right? And so <laughs> if, if it's a spectrum, 
Um, what would you say to a parent that comes and talks to you and says, you know, John, ever since my kids have been going to LaGrange, it seems like they've just, they're the most liberal child in the world. What would you say is happening? Uh, you know, there is a uh, there is a natural progression toward you know questioning everything. I even tell I even tell professors who I you know who I know sort of are closer to wearing their ideology on their sleeve, and I've even been criticized by somebody for being non ideological. I've mostly focused on what are people's theories. I present both sides. My car is the only one, perhaps, in the United States that has a McCain and Obama sticker, you know, and a Romney sticker. How great. Ron Paul. I mean, I've got them all. You know, people, why do I do that? It's to show people, you know, I think it was in Tuscaloosa I pulled up there and some conservatives came in and they said, is that your car outside? Because they could see a bag with buttons all across the political spectrum. And they said, are you feeling well? I said, yeah, I feel pretty good. And they said, because you certainly seem like you're a very confused individual. (laughs) You're going to get killed if you're not careful, John. to show that for any student that if you support any of these candidates, I'll accept you Mm. you into my classroom and your views. Yeah. I mean, class would be really boring if everybody had the same ideology, if it were all liberal or all conservative. Right. I mean, it really – it's that openness you're showing and that acceptance. And uh, to me, it seems like that's healthy because you're seeing – you can take a McCain one year and an Obama a year and you can take a Romney and a – I mean, it's it's just openness. And I guess that's really the principle we're trying to teach our kids. Yes. If you're doing it right, um, and I've even told them, you know, if you're a conservative, I want you to be the smartest conservative around. If you're a liberal, I want you to be the smartest liberal. If you're a squishy, somebody referred to me as a milk toast centrist, you know, if you're one of those, I want you to be the best at that. If you want, if you're a libertarian, I want you to be the best at that. I, I tell them, if I said, unless you've got a swastika or a hammer and sickle. And even those, I'm not going to like, you know, grade you down for your views. Right, you're still a human, and it's <laughs> it's an opinion. Like got that, you know, definitely to be the best. We had a class of students, the, you know, where we had a person he worked for Hillary Clinton as a data director for South Carolina, hmm. and another in the same class. She's working on her second law degree. Her first is from George Mason, and she's an attorney at the NRA. Wow. They took the same class, same material. You know, uh, they can each learn from each other as well as, uh, you know, kind of an open discussion of ideas. Well, what a fantastic discussion. I mean, p- potentially to, to have okay. to have such strong polarized sides that that could actually open up with somebody like yourself that could facilitate something where we can all understand. Wow. Yeah. We need I mean, that in Congress. One reason the South did so well in the Civil War is they had. They had Southerners who had studied at West Point and VMI and Citadel hmm. with Northerners. They knew their opponents pretty well. If you just kind of stayed in your own enclave and you didn't know your opponent, how effective a military leader would you be? That's totally true. See, this is this is why we need to change the discussion from liberal conservative to maybe open-minded. Let's just learn and uh, and create some uh, some free agency here. John Torres, let's— You know, actually, I would say, if I can add yeah, on yeah. to that— it shouldn't just be liberal students and conservative students learning from me. A bad day is when it's a one-way street when I'm doing all the talking around yeah. teaching. It's got to be a two-way street. I have to learn from them. That's so true. they'll have experiences that I don't know about. Well, and again, that 
that's everybody bringing something to the conversation. And um, again, where it seems like that can happen is a college campus if we remain open. We're speaking with Dr. John Torres. Um, he's walking us through an article that he wrote uh, called The Myth of the Liberal Biased College Campus. He's from LaGrange College and is walking us uh, along the path to hopefully maybe a little uh, more understanding of each other's side and at least maybe blowing up a myth about what's really going on on college campuses. We'll take a break, come back, continue this discussion about uh, liberal bias on college campuses. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, today we're talking about the myth of a liberal bias on college campuses. That's an article that was put together by Dr. John Torres from LaGrange College. And he wrote uh, the article. um, It's especially important, I think, when we talk about a lot of us just are driven by fear. And as a parent, you send your kid away to college and then they come home talking all these crazy liberal ideas and immediately we dichotomize it, right? We make it good or bad, right or wrong, liberal, conservative. And yet, uh, again, remember there's the spectrum. We keep, uh, I keep bringing up, there's a spectrum of liberal, conservative. And if your child's going to a university, they, you probably have already chosen the university simply because it falls within the spectrum of potential of your belief system, right? I mean, it, the university's got to jive with your child. Um, and so uh, with uh, Dr. John Torres joining us, I, he, he really uh, is, I think, trying to open up our minds that it's not so black and white as we may think. Uh, Dr. John Torres, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show again. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Great to have you here. It's um, in, in your article, one of the things that you you end up talking about is is more of this idea that the students – um, they're changing, they're learning, they're growing, but they, the 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 numbers of what's happening to college students, you know, turning liberal, they tend to jive with the, the people that are also not going to university, right? As far as the liberal skew, those that aren't going to a university are just as liberal-minded as those that are. Oh, we lost you. We lost uh, Dr. John Torres. And one of the things in his article that he brings up is this point that you you may think you are like really having this crazy kid that's just being having their brain worked over by their college professor. But in reality, according to the analysis, um, uh, it's probably not what you think. It's not the students that are that are at the university having their brains worked over, they're not the ones that are that are having their brains warped. There might be something going on generationally because the kids that aren't in school, the kids that aren't at the university, that are just out working, they are basically at the exact same space, the exact same place as far as the liberal conservative spectrum as those that go to universities. So when you think about your kids, when you think about 
what's going on with those, whether they're at the university or not. Maybe the real issue is they're just at the stage in life where they're going to question and ask questions. And so you might want to look at that as a parent, and instead of giving all of the power or thinking that all of the problems exist at a university, it might simply be because it might be that the power is really more in your kids. Your children are making decisions to see their um, their political views the way they want to see them. Dr. John Torres, I think we've got you back on the line. Are you there, John? Definitely. I definitely am. Gotcha. So I don't know if you heard my question before. But yeah, you in were talking your, about uh, students going off to college and they come back with like a number of liberal ideas or ideas right. different from their parents. Yeah, and and though too, um, the research you did or the research you found for your article also shows that those kids that weren't in college were just as liberalized as those that were going to college. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's what the research suggests, and it's not just for politics. Like, will they be more liberal or so? But they will question traditional institutions like going to church. Right. And one program that I really like that our church does, we're affiliated with the United Methodist Church, is they have a Wednesday evening supper where, you know, students are invited to come for free down for a meal at the church because, you know, it's a time where normally students uh, drift away from their church. They're right. not with their parents. Uh, they don't see a church as having a home for them. And since we started doing, I mean, the the services are packed with students. They all come out. And when I'm helping serve, I mean, I know them all. I mean, there's, <laughs> you know, they wouldn't be at church otherwise. That's right. It's a free meal. I, I if I bring donuts to my team, I mean, they're my best friends forever. <laughs> Krispy Kreme or Dunkin' Donuts. That's yeah, both. Yeah, exactly. I actually would like both. Um, so, so really, the idea though is the liberal in a parent's mind thinks yeah they're falling away from church they're they're engaging in practices they've never engaged in they're having thoughts they've never thought and so it's really scarier than just democrat or republican that's true in fact the biggest debate i i know of that occurs not just on our campuses but a lot of them is uh it doesn't come from politics or it doesn't come from religion it comes from biology mm-hmm and religion. Right. For example, in a class, you're reading a class where a lot of the textbook may cover evolutionary theory. Yeah. And you'll have people who will come to class who are young earthers who say, the earth is only about 6,000 years old. Yeah. And you'll have folks looking at carbon dating and fossil records that suggest it's a lot older. Right. And, and it, what, do you, what do you do when you're uh, answering a test? And what I would suggest for a student who uh, you know, might have been homeschooled or might have been raised in a conservative environment is to say, if you're writing out the essay, here's what the carbon dating says. Here's what the fossil record says. Uh, We've certainly had errors in both. Even some scientists can admit that they might not be exactly right. Mm -hmm. But also to say an alternate opinion is that, uh, or an alternate view is that the earth is much younger. And that's based on biblical. So that way, your answer, you know, they just want to know that you understand evolution theory. That way you can say, I understand evolution theory rather than evolution theory is wrong and I'm not going to answer the question. Yeah. Maybe that's it, though. Here's, here's, you educate the professor saying, here's what I think. And and maybe that's the fear. And maybe that's why we perpetuate this myth is because we're afraid our child, um, we may not have fully prepared our child to see the whole spectrum of information of the world. And instead, we just keep, we've just tried to keep them away from information. And now all of a sudden, as they're being educated, they're going to, they're going to fall into having to critically think through some things. So 
as I, I, what I'm hearing is maybe we could prepare our children a lot better as parents to understand certain arguments around evolution or and around uh, safe sex and sexual relations. Yeah. And we, we need to prepare our children more than just keep information away from them. That's true. It's uh... – I mean, you know, 90% of students are going to public school, and I think, you know, public schools, uh, I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty good. We've had our kids go to public school for a bit. You know, they're not, they're not terrible or so, but I noticed that when our kids were going to public school, there was more onus on the parents to fill in the gaps right. when it comes to religion, when it comes to uh, talking about American values, things like that. Do you, do you see that you can keep – I mean, we see that the media keeps getting beat up for their media bias. Um, And can a professor actually remain objective and openly hear the biblical view of the dating of the earth um, of 6,000 years or whatever? can, Can you see that on campus? Do you see professors that are able to do that? Um, I mean, I've tried to do this as an example myself. When I have professors who, you know, critique me for not having an ideology. That's right. Yeah, you're the yeah. the job of a professor is to profess. <laughs> well, what do I profess? I profess, you know, testing myths, critical thinking. I don't profess one ideology. Right. You could have a smart conservative mythbuster and a smart liberal mythbuster. And you know, I, I'm going to flip this over. I'm going to kind of flip the argument, yeah, saying that instead of colleges saying, well, we shouldn't be biased on everybody, colleges should lead on this. And colleges should say, "This is we are institutions where you can have Democrats and Republicans come together, mm. express their views, but not hate the other side. Right. For example, there's a Washington Post piece that uh, they cite some political scientists who were saying uh, this is an old study done after World War II where they said, you know, like if you take a country, war-torn country like Italy, what if you're a Christian Democrat, you know, supporter of that political party? Could you accept your daughter marrying a communist and vice versa, you know, <laughs> right. a communist? Could you, could you stand to have your daughter marry a Christian Democrat? And, you know, for totalitarian countries, that was seen as very inhospitable. Oh, the other side is not just wrong but evil. Yeah, they're dark However, and dirty. In this country, you have you know a third of Democrats and half of Republicans say they would disapprove if their kid married somebody from the opposite party, oh. and that that's danger level. That is, well, maybe that we need to, that's a great what, point. What colleges need to do is we need to change that thinking to say that Democrats aren't evil, Republicans aren't evil. We can mm-hmm. have disagreements about the the country, but. You know, we're not enemies. Our enemies would love us if we fought amongst ourselves this way. Yeah. It's it's almost like – in fact, I've been trying to figure out where is the place that you could have these open discussions because it's not happening in politics. Um, and maybe you're exactly right. The place where it should be safe to explore all of your ideas uh, would be on a college campus. I, I studied a lot uh, dialogue theory, which – teaches a lot a different approach to communicating instead of discussion which comes from the same words as percussion and concussion where we kind of uh, blow each other up um, we need to yes yeah, dialogue would mean kind of the sharing of our logic in an open forum and wouldn't it be powerful if you had a really strong professor very well cited and noted and and yet that professor could just as equally argue the beliefs of the Bible follower, I mean, to the degree that he, that he could do that or she could do that, as well as the scientists, as well as every other person that's had an opinion. 
What if we could bring it all out there? I'm glad you brought this up. I'm going to have to use that because I was going to be helping a business group in town lead a discussion. So I'm going to lead off by Do saying that. perhaps what we need is dialogue instead yeah. of discussion. Now, in the news, you'll probably see, uh, like, I think there was a student newspaper that got defunded because of a controversial column. Mm, I didn't see I that. I think was as controversial as uh, critics make it out to be. But what happened um, was that the student group said, oh, we're going to shut down the student newspaper right. running this column or defund it. And you'll see cases where somebody says, we can't have Condoleezza Rice as a speaker. We can't have the right. head of the IMF as a speaker. And people will say colleges are too intolerant. And I would agree on those. On the other hand, they're saying – I think they get the wrong idea. They're saying people should have extreme opinions and they should – they should be blasting their extreme opinions out there. And that's closer to what you were saying, mm-hmm. discussion. Yeah. What we need to do, I mean, when, when we uh, look to employers, we have uh, businesses. They don't want someone who's going to blow up the place. <laughs> right. They want people with differing opinions who can come in. They all have different ideas. Can they negotiate a solution? Can they work with someone who's different from them? Right. That's what businesses actually want. They don't want bomb throwers. No, that's right. Well, and you and you want well, and so one of the principles of dialogue theory is the idea that I'm going to let the ideas battle, not the people and their techniques. I don't the people. You could have a really strong argument simply because the person doing the argument is a better is better in persuasion than the person against that they're fighting against. But the point is, we want the ideas to go to battle, and let the ideas, if they have the power on their own merit to stand on their own, let them stand on their own, but just let all the ideas into the pool and those that are healthy and coherent will float and those that aren't will sink. And we just keep I'm right. I'm writing this down. I got to figure out where you took. I'll, I'll tell you, just go look up, just go look up David Bohm on the book, uh, on dialogue. And, um, oh, there's another great book. Um, but just if you start there, dialogue theory is an incredible theory of, of this ability to communicate. And once you read it, it'll, it'll change you forever, John, because you'll sit there and you'll think, I've got to get more of this in my conversations. I've got to get my students more in dialogue than in what you're saying, the didactic approach where you come in and just tell them what it is. You want the discussion to take place or the dialogue to take place with your people. Yeah. I even did something in my international politics class where I came in and I said, who is the greatest threat to America? This was debated in 2012. I gave Obama's answer, which is terrorist groups, right. and Romney's answer, which is Vladimir Russia, Putin. Right. I was trying to point out, and you know, students took their sides. You know, some of it colored by which candidate they liked. Sure. But I pointed out, although some of the ones who were Republican thought, well, I would answer terrorism. And some of the Democrats are like, I'm more concerned about Vladimir Putin. So there was some cross Yeah. But I told them, I said, they're not wrong answers. It's just based on their experiences. Most Republicans right. think in terms of government versus government. And Democrats are more in tune with looking at non-state actors like terror groups, like yeah. multinational corporations. See, see, that's our dilemma. And, and we don't have anybody that can just not dichotomize it, that can just allow it to float. And and stay in the middle and get the information out. Man, John, we got to have you back. Go read that book by David Bohm on dialogue. It's a quick read. You'll get it. And and then there's a million other books uh, from there. Um, but we'll have you back because I think we need more of this. We got to promote this. Yep. So we we got to have uh, another dialogue instead of discussion. No, exactly. Let's do it. Uh, Doctor John Torres, we appreciate it from Lagrange University. 
Uh, great stuff, folks. We've got to broaden our minds here, and it doesn't. Don't think dichotomize either or. Don't make it that way. How can we all just understand each other better? Good stuff. We'll take a break. We'll come back do a quick wrap up of this first hour of the show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. To the Matt Townsend Show. Isn't it interesting just how your thought process works? Humans, we we tend to look for what we want to see. And we tend to find it wherever we need to find it. Even if it doesn't fit perfectly, by golly, we will make it fit. One way or another, it's going to fit. One thing to remember is you're not seeing things as they are. You're seeing things as a reflection of who you are. So if every discussion comes down to good or bad, right or wrong, um, you are filtering. So some of the things you got to watch out for, they're just natural human traits. We tend to filter a lot. We tend to black and white think everything. A lot of us tend to overgeneralize. We tend to jump to conclusions. We catastrophize taking a tiny bitty thing and making it into a horrible catastrophe. Like what if? That's where we get into all the what ifs. We personalize it. We feel like it's always about us. Like why did she say that? That was so rude to me. Um, we, uh, we, we have a lot of blaming. We, sh- we have a lot of shoulds, things that should be certain ways. We can justify. We can reason. We believe that we are, we are changing even when there's not evidence to prove that we're changing. We label stuff. We have a, a propensity to always be right or feel like we're always right. So they're human. I call them tricks. And we're doing them all the time. So when you sit and listen to talk radio and it's all good, bad, right, wrong, yes, no, you know, pretty ugly. You're you're just being a human. The problem is a lot of our problems are not going to be solved by humans that think either or black, white. It's not going to work that way. In fact, you're just going to see more of the problems we've seen. Anyway, that's hour number one of the Matt Townsend show. Thanks for being with us. We couldn't do the show without you, of course. Hello. Uh, we'll take a break. Come back next hour. A whole new set of tools and skills, everything you need to, uh, Live a healthier, happier life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. This is the show where uh, we give you the insight, the information, the research, the tools you need, the solutions you need to uh, lead your family, lead your life to a healthier, happier place. Good morning. Top of the morning to you. By the way, today, no exception, we will be speaking with Dr. Brian Willoughby, and he is going to be talking to us about... 
He's going to give us the five reasons. These are the reasons that a lot of people say they don't want to get married. And so he's basically the five reasons not to get married and why they're all wrong. He's blowing up the myths. People are afraid to get married because of some false ideas, and he's going to blow up the myths. And as a marriage researcher here at BYU, you know, it's an important thing to know the truth. So we'll be giving you the latest, greatest research on that. Um, Maybe you can have your college-aged kids (laughs) just listen. You can go find our link on LinkedIn or iTunes or um, TuneIn or everywhere else, byuradio.org. We've got them everywhere. And you can send the podcast to your kids and say, kids, you need to listen to this. I know you're afraid to get married. This is why you don't need to be afraid. Cool stuff. So we'll be getting to that. But before we go there, let's get into some um, of uh, some news just around uh, the country we got to get to and around the world, actually. You may have heard um, (laughs) – this is a little Halloween follow-up news, okay? A worker at a Canadian pharmacy accidentally gave out bipolar medication to trick-or-treaters. Instead of uh, candy. Mom, I don't know what it is, but I love these little red ones. Oh, it's so sad. The mix-up unfolded. That, that was somebody, I guess, bouncing off the walls. Oh. 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 Just keep going there. Yeah, Yeah. you just listen to that. Whoa. 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 <laughs> okay. The mix-up unfolded after a woman unknowingly dropped her 17-year-old son's prescription drugs while on her way out of the pharmacy. Another customer picked up the medication and placed it dangerously close to the candy basket on the counter. Whoops. Oops. So unfortunately, we don't know how, but an employee just mixed it up with the candy and just gave it to the kids. These are breath mints. We'll just put these in here. Take these. They're prescribed to some guy named Jimmy. <laughs> anyway, uh, the police were notified. The, the medications were not dangerous. Despite the side effects that include suicidal thoughts, tremors, and nausea. Just, no, don't worry about those. You're fine. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Don't worry about it. It's great. Crazy. It's all right. Anyway, that's that's bad news. I've always kind of questioned. I've seen that where you had to go get medication on Halloween or near it and they have candy. Mm -hmm. You're like, really? Is that the place where you want to get candy from? I don't know. It just seems like you're asking for some problems. You have small candy shaped a certain way and- Pills look, you know, There's shaped a, a certain way. There's a lot that could go know. wrong there. Especially, I think these were saying they're like individually wrapped. Oh, wow. <laughs> Little pills. I'm like, really? What are we? Okay. <laughs> At some point, there's got to be a red flag where we just don't participate. or We individually wrap our meds. Maybe you just have candy bars, little fun size candy bars. What, whatever happened to the day you just go knock doors on streets and yeah. you just, you know, we don't go to businesses. Like, you go to Victoria's Secret, what do you hope to get? Huh? I don't You're know. Not. So these people go to the malls now and, and do their trick-or-treating. Yeah, but it, that's it's, it's, usually it's, just a ploy to get you in the mall. Yeah. I mean, everyone knows that. Yeah, but you go anyways because your kid's going to get candy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you go to the GNC, you yeah. get some vitamins. Every, every store, I mean, there's very few things at the mall that the kids are really interested in. There's one store. There's a maybe a toy store. Right. Yeah. yeah. Do you want some Birkenstocks, son? <laughs> No, Mom. <laughs> Just can we go home now? Hey, did you hear about that uh, pack of raccoons, the, the killer attacking raccoons? No, a few months ago we had a story. 
They're back. Where they attacked a man and a woman who were out walking their dogs. That was horrible. Do you remember? And like the, the wife turned around and the husband had a raccoon on his leg. And she's like, what's going on? Then all of a sudden something jumped on her uh, and she's going nuts. And then a neighbor came running out from yeah. down the street with a garbage can and a broomstick or something. Yeah, banging scared, him scared him away. That was well, that story. They're back. It's the same neighborhood in San Francisco. A group of raccoons attacked a couple and their two small dogs. Holy cow. That would be terrifying. Like, how do you, what do you do to protect your little chihuahua? A uh, kick, I guess. San Francisco animal care and control officers are doing precautionary patrols in the area of the attack. They've also consulted wildlife experts on possible next steps. What they need is Deer Hunter 2016. There you go. Add raccoons to the list. Thank you, Ben. The two people uh, who are visiting from Ireland, oh, man, were reportedly rushed by more than a dozen raccoons while walking their daughter's dogs. A dozen raccoons. My sister That's lives insane. near San Francisco up in the kind of the mountains. Yeah. We live in the mountains here in Utah? I don't know if I've seen that many raccoons at one no. time ever in my life. No, no. And I've spent time camping and hiking. Yeah. Even on there. roadkill, you don't see that many. No. There's one... Someone was telling me there's a raccoon by our house. And they go, did you go see that? I go, it's in the road, right? They go, yeah. They go, why would I go look at roadkill? (laughs) You don't want to miss this. The pets, uh, by the way, of this couple, they've sustained minor injuries. No names were released except the dog's name was Fifi. Fifi. No, I just made that up. And um, they had to receive rabies shots. This is scary. Yeah. Once you teach a raccoon to be a pack animal and they start hunting like jackals. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. San Francisco's in trouble. Man. So watch out for raccoons if you're in the uh, San Francisco area. I mean, usually when we talk about San Francisco, it's like watch out for people going to the bathroom on the yeah. walls. But That's, now it's like we that, got you got to solve bigger problems. That was another problem they had and still have. Attack of the killer raccoons. Now it's raccoons. Anyway, uh, interesting news. Let's uh, let's go to the headlines with Terry. Find out what's going on in the rest of the world. Terry? Thanks, Matt. Donald Trump has a new book coming out. He called a press conference Tuesday to promote its release and talk about how great it was and how a better of a person it was going to make you if you read this book. He also took the opportunity to go after his presidential opponents. Do I think it's time to have some of the other Republican candidates drop out? Yes. I think Marco is highly overrated. Ben Carson does not have that energy. I think beating Hillary Clinton is going to be easy. My Jeb impression? No, I don't want to do that. I don't like showing a person sleeping at a podium. (laughs) (sighs) CBS News with the compilation of clips there. Trump also said that when it comes to the debates, he doesn't want to to hassle with rule changes. Give him a podium. He'll show up. Get her done. Him and and Chris Christie. Yeah. We'll do this. A new poll out Tuesday by public policy polling reveals that undercard debater Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal now pulls ahead of Jeb Bush in Iowa, 6% to 5%. Though the difference is still within the poll's 3.9% margin of error, it still doesn't bode well for the former establishment favorite. When it comes to Bush's favorability numbers in Iowa, the news is even more dismal. Bush polls worse than any other GOP candidate in terms of favorability with only 30% viewing him favorable, 43% viewing him negatively favorable. Frontrunner Carson, 74% favorable, 13% unfavorable. Wow. People really, really like Dr. Carson. Yeah. The House wants to make sure it has plenty of time for next November's election, so much so that it's decided to take start the annual August recess in the middle of July. 
While they're out at the house, will also take the entire <laughs> month of October off. The House 2016 calendar released Tuesday by Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy shows that uh, August recess next year will be a whopping seven weeks long and that the House will be out uh, for the starting session at the beginning of October through the week after Election Day. See, Jeb shouldn't have compared <laughs> Congress or the Senate to a French to work French. week. French, he should compare it to the House. <laughs> this is crazy. Oh, That's going to put it an even bigger dent in the number of weekdays worked. At, at, according to the Washington Post, Congress currently only works about 40% of weekdays. This is going to make that even more time off. So wow. they're only working 40% of the normal, what would be a traditional workday for the, the people in America that go to work every day. Yeah. But they, they go, oh, but we're actually home in our home districts and we're, we're working, working at with, home with the people and our constituents. And you're like, eh, Not okay, really. you, you got a day off. Yeah. So, or you've got so 60% of your days off. Next year, mid-October, through uh, a week after the November elections. See, I think they need to punch a time clock that everyone can see so we can yeah. see exactly how much you're working. Well, you, uh, allegedly you do with votes. No. That's yeah, where, that's do, where right. Senator Rubio was not there to vote. And that yeah. was the, the problem there. Hmm. One thing all voters are, are basically unified by, it was found out in an NBC News Wall Street Journal poll. Voters are angry across the board. Republican, Democrat, conservative, right. liberal, everyone is unhappy. Anger about the political system. In fact, nearly seven out of ten Americans agree with the statement, I feel angry because our political system seems only to be working for the insiders with money and power like those on Wall Street or in Washington, yeah. rather than it working to help everyone? That's a very long question. So basically, they're not helping me. They're helping people with money and they work on Wall Street. Well, and That's they're not they even working. That's another reason why we're angry. No one's working. Right. Another 42% say that the statement defines how they feel very well. The, majorities, uh, the majority uh, of many different demographics who can otherwise find little common ground identified with the statement. So hmm. some groups were even more outraged than other others. Democrats were angrier than, than Republicans, 77% to 66%. Really? Interesting. Yeah, I think uh, this is why a Trump-Carson-Bernie uh, Sanders thing is working. People are ticked. They're looking for options. So we don't need anybody that's been in there forever. Let's just go get somebody that's totally new. Totally new, that's yeah. It's going to crack the whip. As we talked about yesterday, today... Oh, yeah. Unofficially, Death to America Day. Yeah, that's not a very popular day in America. <laughs> it's also like Candy Day and yeah, other, I, other I things. Yeah, I like Candy Day better. Death to America Day, unofficially. Mm. It says American flags and effigies of President Barack Obama were set ablaze on Wednesday as thousands gathered to mark the anniversary of the 1979 takeover of the Iranian capital, uh, capital's U.S. embassy. Anti-U.S. slogans were also chanted just a day after Iran's supreme leader explained that the familiar death to America refrain was aimed at policies, not at people. Mm. So this is celebrating the November 4th, 1979 takeover of the U.S. embassy in Iran. So 400, uh, what, 400 days the crisis prompted the U.S. to sever ties with Iran, you know, the, the whole story there. Right. But that's what they're commemorating by chanting and running through the streets. Well, you know. Reasons to celebrate. Not everyone can love us. <laughs> that's what my wife always says. Anyway, interesting stuff. Man, that's a crazy day to even have. That's, I mean, who has a death to Iran day? Anyway, weird, weird, weird world we're living in, folks. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Dr. Brian Willoughby will be joining us. And uh, he's going to be blowing up some myths. So if you have somebody in your life 
that uh, you know hasn't proposed yet for a variety of reasons, or you know they're afraid to get married. Stick with us. Brian Willoughby will be blowing up some of the myths that keep people from getting married. Interesting stuff. Five reasons not to get married and why they're all wrong. Boom! Stick with us. Dr. Brian Willoughby up next. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, joining us in studio is our good friend, Dr. Brian Willoughby, assistant professor in the School here of Family Life at Brigham Young University. He's also the director of the Relate Institute, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to studying and improving romantic relationships. You really need to uh, go to relateinstitute.com because there's assessments you can take with your partner and find out you really find out what's going on. Right. It's great. It's really cool work, Brian, that you're doing. Yeah, it might be the best website ever. No, I think, I, I think of all time. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> I, you're not biased, though. No, not at all. Except you're totally biased. Um, but that's not what you're talking about today. Today, you're going to help us blow up some myths because you hear, everybody out there hears examples of why people don't want to get married. They right. have all these myths, and you're you're here to say... I'm going to give you the reason why you shouldn't get married, and I'm going to tell you why it's completely messed up. Exactly. There are, there are, like you said, a lot of myths out there that are perpetuated by the media. We hear about them from our friends. And everyone's trying to answer this question, why are people not getting married anymore? Right. What, well, what, what is it? I think it's our parents were messed up. Oh, yeah. That, that, that's, <laughs> that's underlying everything we're going to talk about today. Exactly. It's the baby boomers it's the messing ba- everything up. <laughs> I can't tell you how many young adult conference research <laughs> conferences I've gone to. Where the main message from the scholars there are baby boomers have messed everything up. <laughs> are you serious? Yep. That's the whole premise. Well, duh, every parent generation messed up their kids some way. Yeah. Th- this might just be more catastrophic. <laughs> it's because there's so many of them. Yeah. Hey, um, talk about – because give us the data though. Fewer couples are marrying and they're marrying later. Right. Yeah. So people are, are waiting longer and longer to get married. The average age of marriage is about 28 for both men and women now, so right? almost to 30. Yeah. Um, the percent of people every year that are getting married is declining. And the big one is for the last couple of years, the total proportion of our po- – the percent of our population that is married has been declining. Wow. So even though we've seen the declining marriage rates, et cetera, for 20, 30 years, for a long time, it's only been the last 10 or so years that we've seen the percent of married people just total declining, which basically starts to show us that over – if these trends continue, being married is going to be – an endangered population pretty soon wow. in our society. What? Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, then eventually, so I assume, too, they're going to have fewer children. Right. Mm-hmm. So then all of a sudden we're going to be China. Yeah. And in fact, the U.S. is one of the few industrialized countries where our fertility rates are still about at what we call replacement rate, which means we can yeah. replace our population. Most places in Europe... A lot of places in Southeast Asia are well below that and having population crisis, fertility issues. Isn't that? But I thought that the world was getting overpopulated and we were going to have to like slowly, you know, kill people. In Africa. In, in Africa, Africa and parts of Asia, there, there's parts there's of the world. There's still some overpopulation that, Yeah, the problem. most impoverished parts of our world are, are struggling with overpopulation and having enough resources. But if you look at the industrialized parts of the world, again, us, 
most of Europe, parts of you mean the ones with all the resources? Yeah, the ones with all the food and the money. <laughs> um, they are actually having a, a fertility crisis, and we don't we don't talk about it as much in the U.S. because we're not quite there. Yeah, um, but you go to parts of Europe and other parts of the world, and the, there is a major fertility crisis. There. So the baby boomers. Somebody asked me why they think uh, these kid these younger kids aren't marrying, and they, they thought. Some of it might have to do with um, the fact that we, we've overparented them. We've kind of made them – they've never had to like learn or try and experience and fail and kind of go through. But the process of dating is a lot of try and trying and failing. Right. Yeah. The, the underlying theme of most of what we're going to talk about is fear. And a lot of that does come yeah. from parents. There's a lot of young adults – is they're dating or not dating and thinking about marriage or not thinking about marriage, there's a lot of fear, oh. anxiety about what that relationship will be like, what they're going to lose if they decide to get married. You brought that up too that in the past about the, the myth that you, you know, you got to find the one. Right. That, you know, the one. Yeah, that one person that's going to make me completely happy yeah. out there. Or, you better hope she's yeah. not in Uganda. Or as we talked about, if, if I'm an educated, rational person, there's not one person. <laughs> there might be ten. Yeah, you've got to find I one, gotta of, find the one of the ten out there somewhere. Right. Yeah. And that you'd have to date. Right. I have to find them. Then you got to talk. Date, and then they got to make me happy because that's, that, that's <laughs> what matters is if you make me happy. Oh, we have messed them up, haven't we? Those baby boomers. Not Luckily, I'm not even a baby boomer, but they really messed these kids up. <laughs> no, not all of them. Not all of them. A lot. Of them. So you're going to sort of sort through that. Um, but one of the first myths, let's blow up, because is the whole money idea that like people want to be ready. They want to they want to have their degree in college or whatever. They want to have their job. They want to maybe even have a home. They want to be totally, totally ready to get right. married. Yeah, the money thing is huge for young adults today. And I, I, I teach a family stress class, and we go through all the horrible things that can happen to people, you know, divorce, death, chronic illness. The scariest day in that class is the family finance day. And all I do <laughs> is I put them in groups. I okay, you're going to be a little family in groups of three or four. I'm going to give you $65,000 a year. I just want you to budget it. That's all we're going to do today. And it scares them to death. Does it really? Like, oh. Yeah. Like, well, what about, what about my Xbox? What about my cell phone <laughs> Do they plan? start fighting? Yeah. Well, they start just getting really anxious about my life <laughs> is over, all these plans. And it doesn't help that we're in a social science. Yeah, right. And so they're not going to make any money anyway. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's this fear and anxiety that I need to have all of these things first. And, and for mo- most modern young adults, and the thing I have to point out to a lot of them is their expectations about their standard of living is very different than their parents. Oh, yeah. Again, they expect that I'm going to have the, the TV. I'm going to have the cell phone plan. I'm going to have the internet service. I'm going to have all of these things. You start adding that per month. That's several hundred dollars a month that your parents didn't have to deal with right. when they were 20 right. years old, 25 right. years old. But they want it right away. And they want to be able to take vacations. And they want to have a car. And so um, it was interesting when I used to teach in the Midwest um, – And I would ask the students, you know, what do you need to have financially before you get married? And the top two things were a house that's paid for. Oh, yeah, sure. And I need to have started my college, my kid's college education fund before I even get married, before we even have kids. Those are the top two things. (laughs) Jeez. And and, and so there's this anxiety that not only do I want to have all those things, I need to have them all set before I make that transition. What were, I mean, what were you, I wasn't thinking any, I was thinking I'll need a ring. Right. Yeah, that that was about me. I was, I was like thinking, ins- who can I borrow like money from be done with to get to the ring right. part of it? Yeah, and it's a very different mentality, this idea of I'm going to build something together with someone, right. and, and it's going to be hard, and we're going to struggle together. 
but that's going to bring us closer together. I know from my wife and I, we definitely feel that now. Oh, yeah. As we look back at those early years of our marriage when Subway and Little Caesars was a fancy Big night. Yeah, deal. that was a night, date night for us. <laughs> right. Um, that, that, that was a really powerful period of growth for us. And, and now we appreciate all the things oh. that we have a lot more. Um, but for a lot of young adults, it, it is. It's I need to get my college education done. I need to get my career set. And not just you know have my job. Right. But I need to be in that job for a couple of years because you don't know if I'm going to keep that job. I don't know if they're going to ship me across the country. That's another big part that's tied to education and finances is is just residential mobility. Am I going to be in the same place right. for a long time? And where, yeah, where can you make your living? Right. It's uh, I, I see BYU students all over that, you know, they have their big screen TVs. They have their Xbox. Mm-hmm. They have – and I'm like, where do you put this? Well, right. I just put it in my dorm room. <laughs> Right. And, you have a big screen TV in your dorm room? Yeah. And and for a lot, back to the baby boomers messing everyone up. <laughs> one of the reasons that happens for a lot of young adults is that they're partially funded by their parents. That's true. That mom and dad might be paying for some of my tuition. They might be helping me with my rent. Yeah. And so now I have a lot more discretionary income. But mom and dad have also been really clear that as soon as I get married, now I'm an adult and I have to pay for all of this totally. stuff. And so marriage becomes a pay cut. Oh, it really does. I, well, I remember my first when my first child got married, I had to wean her off of every account I have. Yeah. Even like my Netflix, she's yeah. still like popping on. Yep. Hey, oh, oh, get off, get off. You're not in my family anymore. Except my granddaughter just was born, so now she's back. Okay. I brought my daughter back in. Um, interesting stuff. So you're saying it doesn't – money should not be the concern. Well, obviously, I mean, I mean there, yeah, there, is, there's but... a point where we need to make sure that people aren't in poverty. Yeah. But but just the act of getting married doesn't make someone poor. In fact, if from a financial standpoint, there's tax benefits to yeah. being married. There's actually financial incentives to getting married. Um, a lot of this is just kind of this myth of the marriage isn't going to work right. unless we have certain resources. And again, to an extent, that's true. If we're in poverty and we can't put food on the table for myself— Getting married isn't going to be a magic pill to help that, um, but it also isn't going to necessarily automatically decrease my well-being. We're not going to be more likely to divorce just because we're not making you know two hundred thousand versus one hundred thousand versus right. seventy-five. Do, do married 000. men, for example, make more money than non-married men? Yes, they do on so average. It actually is good for business. Yeah, yeah. it's good for your finances because yeah, my wife drove me like a. Like she was like riding a mule. Exactly. Yeah. For, particularly for married men is that they tend to be more driven. They do better in the workforce. They make more money. Yeah. And, and part of it is that I'm supporting multiple people now. I'm sure. more driven and more goal oriented. And so they, they do married men tend to make more money than single men. I look at my son-in-law that just – they just had a baby and we were in the room after the baby was born and like a day after and we're talking and his whole focus is – I got to make more money now. Right. I got to get going. Yep. I got to, and he's already doing incredibly well. Right. And yet, I think I think that's because he's married too. There's just a different focus. Yeah. yeah. I, I think of like a 29 year old that didn't have that impetus. Mm-hmm. You might. I mean, I guess you've traveled maybe more. Right. Yeah. The, it's a it's a different focus. Mm-hmm. It's it's I get to travel the world. If they do, but then yeah. some don't. They yeah. just are 29 and they still haven't tried, but they will. Right. They're yeah. about to. Yeah, they, they think they're about to. <laughs> oh, Brian. Good stuff. Uh, we'll take a break. We're coming back. More with Dr. Brian Willoughby. Again, you got to go check out the website, uh, relateinstitute.com. 
If you're having any issues or if you're about to get married, it's a great place to go to because you can take the assessments and then find out what you need to work on. They have activities you can work on and learn and grow. It's just a simple way to improve your marriage today, right this minute. We'll take a break. More with Dr. Brian Willoughby from Brigham Young University. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. In studio with us, Dr. Brian Willoughby, His Excellency, he likes to be called. He's an assistant professor at the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University, the director of the Relate Institute, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to studying and improving romantic relationships. Uh, his expertise, by the way, includes area of dating, sexuality, cohabitation, marriage formation, marital attitudes, and beliefs. Man, um, and I love you, Brian, because you bring out um, – there's, there's a lot of myths. There's a lot of research. We hear a lot of stuff, and none of it – not none of it. Much, much of it is a little far-blown. Right. Right? So we hear like, yeah, I mean you got you to gotta, you gotta know who you're marrying, which you do. And you, you can eventually – you could live together. You could cohabitate. Yeah. Little, little kernels of truth in some aspects. Right. That we blow up into big things and make absolute statements that are usually not true. And, and, it's, and it seems like it would make sense. Like maybe living with somebody mm-hmm. would you know, improve the likelihood of you knowing if you want to marry them, like a pre-marriage, right. like a pre-trial. Yeah. You know, you want to try your yeah. car before you – Right. And, 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 and the interesting thing is that that does make sense for those couples that don't have a moral obligation to it, that are engaged – and then do it right before they get married as that actual little test before. Those couples end up okay. Uh-huh. The other couples will say, well, we haven't really talked about marriage. Yeah. But let's try things out for a couple of years. Those couples struggle. So it's, it's really having the commitment. It's mm-hmm. being willing. It's the moral belief in it anyway. Right. We're moving that way. We're unified yeah. in this. Yeah, the importance of marriage, the importance of commitment. Yeah. Lo and behold, people that hold on to those ideals do better. Oh, I thought – see, I thought all these ideals were old-fashioned. Oh, they are, but there's a reason for that. Because <laughs> it works. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? That Yeah. like re- That's why redefining marriage was such a big deal because it's not just who gets to marry. It's what? Thousands and thousands of years of principles that we kind of know work. Right. Yeah. They're not working perfectly, but – And that's that's the hard thing about a lot of the stuff we're talking about is that when, when we talk about how people think about marriage and their myths around marriage, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Okay. Well, people – don't value marriage maybe quite as much as they did, but we know that little shifts culturally oh. in those attitudes down the line. And that's the tricky thing is it's not right now. No, it's right. 10, it's 20, delayed. 30 years down the line, maybe even into the next generation. That's where we start to see these big, massive shifts. And we've seen more family trend shifts in the last 100 years than we've ever seen in human history because there's been so much cultural right. upheaval around right. how we think about relationships. Well, and I guess, yeah, when you were in a tribe – and no one dared leave. <laughs> right. We stuck together. Yeah. Family was a no-brainer. Right. But, okay, here's another myth we got to blow up. How about the myth that I have to give up all my social circles for my spouse? I can't have a life. I can't hunt. 
Right. I can't, I can't do, do what I want to do. All these things. Once I get the marriage will be the death <laughs> of me. Right. As I've, yeah, I've, that I've seems had totally all real. these fun things that I've gotten to do. And now I've got to grow up. <sighs> now I've got to be an adult. Now I can't do anything to budget. Yeah. Which is funny because all the research we see says that the people that actually do that, they give up all their friends after they get married. They do have a really crummy life. Yeah. It doesn't work. <laughs> but, but, what people don't realize is that marriage oftentimes opens up more social avenues for you because you have all of your friends. Right. But now you have all of her, her friends or his friends. That's right. yeah. Plus double the family. Yeah. Plus double the family, double the acquaintances, possibly double the coworkers. Yeah. You've now almost doubled, depending on how overlapped your social circles were to yeah. begin with, you've almost doubled your social network. Well, you've just made the argument if, that if you're an introvert, you shouldn't marry. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you just brought a well, lot of people into my life. Yeah, you don't have to interact <laughs> yeah, with them. That's right. You can also choose not to. Yeah, you can choose not <laughs> to. But but mar- marriage can, because of that, greatly increase people's social interactions. And sometimes it can be different because there is the natural kind of tendency to move away from single friends right. and move to couple friends. And, mm-hmm. um, but, but the myth that all of a sudden I'm going to lose all of my freedom – and all of my friends is is just that it's a myth. You and, and it, it can, it's all up for negotiation, right? That's the key. And, and sometimes that's really what's below the surface is people don't want to negotiate. Yeah. I don't want to have to talk to someone, right? I don't have to ask my wife about, if I can go hunting. Yeah, exactly. Which is probably means you probably aren't a good marriage partner anyway. <laughs> <That's> right, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, is that all of that's up up for negotiation? And then again, you're adding now these couple activities, these things that you maybe never realized that you liked that now you can do. I know for me. One of these things was musicals. I didn't grow up, me and my brother. Loving musicals. Loving musicals. Oh, I thought you did. I know. I give up that, give out that aura, right? You go sit at the cat's Um, But my wife loves them. Does she? Loves musicals. And so this was one of those things she introduced me to when we got married. And now I've I've got no shame. I love musicals. Well, I heard you whistling Oklahoma when you came in. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so that's been one of these things that we love together now as a couple. How cool. You didn't even know you had gone Exactly. Yeah. I didn't know that that was something that I might enjoy. But because of my marriage, because of my expanded um, activity and social network now, I I know that. I always make jokes when I'm doing my group stuff about hunting and why guys go hunt. They don't go hunt to talk. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I had a lady in the class that just – her husband introduced her to hunting and she loves it. And I go, do you love it or do you just – love being with him and she's like no i love it yeah i'm like like gutting a deer she's like well but it's the whole day it's the whole event it's yeah. so you can learn to love anything yeah and that that's i mean think about how different a mentality that is marriage doesn't close doors it opens yeah that's huge for me no that's great uh what about the um here's a reason not to get married because married people are miserable they're well, yeah. just a bunch of negative boring people that go to dinner and don't talk that's and, a given. And yeah. then they divorce. Yeah, it's a given. <laughs> no, I mean, back to the research. Um, we know that married people are, are statistically more likely to be happier with, just with life. Not, not in relationships, just with life. And there's something powerful about having someone that supports you. That's again, excluding other variables. This is right. marriage makes you happier. Right. Yeah. And, and obviously, you know, we're talking in general. There are yeah. certainly marriages that are not making oh, sure. people right. happier. But on average – Married people are happier because you have that stability. You've got that person that you can count on, and it's different than dating. Because with dating, there's always this fear. Even if we have a really good relationship, yeah. on the back of my mind, I know that any at any moment, you can walk away. There's not a commitment. There's yeah. not – I mean that's what's interesting about marriage is you are legally 
stuck mm-hmm. and would have to undo a legal obligation. Right. Yeah, which makes it different. It's a it different make, level a of different. commitment going through that with someone. And so when I know I've got that person, that we're working towards things together, mm-hmm. we're building something together, there's just there's greater contentment. You know, when I'm yeah. having that down day, I don't just go hide by myself. I've got someone I can talk to. Yeah. And so I guess part of that is it's, for some people, it's easy to keep the myth alive. So if you don't want right. marriage, then just keep thinking it's miserable. Right. Well, and like almost any negative thing out there in our society, what happens with this is we don't talk about the happy, fulfilled couples. Right. We all hear the stories about the miserable couples. <laughs> Did you hear so-and-so? Yeah, yeah, the one of your friend, that one couple exactly. out of your 500 friends. Yeah, and then it's that story that goes through our social circles and social media now. So true. And we hear that, and then we, we take that one story. We ignore the 25 other couples yeah. that we know that are doing awesome, and we focus on, wow, they, they seem like they were fine. That's so true. And That's now they're human, not. huh? That's just what we do. We awfulize. We uh, catastrophize. How about this one? Another uh, reason not to get married. You're going to miss out on all your dating opportunities or sexual opportunities that you had when you were single. You're going to be you're going to be more boring. Right. You're so, not going to have as much opportunity. So two parts to this. Number one, to the sex specifically. Yeah. It's where building up all these wonderful things about marriage. Married people have more sex. What? I know. But I thought they just never did and they always just complained about it. No. Again? Those are the stories we hear about. But, but they have sex to have babies. Nope. Oh, they don't word. do that. They, they actually these? have sex for fun. And Enjoyment. more and more than a and single. More. Yes, more than a single person, more than most daters. Um, married people have more regular sex and more satisfied sex. Are you – really? Yes. See, but that's a, such an illusion. Huh? We think mm-hmm. the singles are out there just partying it up, mm-hmm. having – Sexual relations, and then they're and it's so much more fulfilling, right? It's and, not. and that's what we see in the TV shows. That's what we see in the yeah. movies. But there's actually a really big literature out there about sexual regret in dating, really? like that a heaviness. A, like yeah, a, there's a significant portion of young adults that are dating that that talk about how many of their sexual experiences end with regret. That oh, I kind of wish I didn't end up with that guy or that girl. I kind of wish I hadn't really? done that. And that that happens a lot versus a married partner who, because of our experience with each other, because of the years we've been together, we start to, hopefully, in a good relationship, we're communicating, we understand each other, Hmm. and so that the intimacy can be at a deeper level and more satisfying for a lot of people. Well, talk about, we also think that we've got to date so many people to know who's the one we need to marry. Right, yeah. So there's this idea about sexual chemistry. Yeah. Um, and I, I published actually a couple studies in a, a couple of years ago on this very issue, actually looking because no one had ever actually talked about yeah to see if that works. Does the whole sexual chemistry? I need to find someone that I'm sexually compatible uh-huh. with um, play out in marriage, and we actually found that it, it was the opposite. That the the people that were abstaining from sex till marriage actually had more healthy relationships and better sex lives than the people that had multiple partners before marriage. And what we we think we were seeing in that particular study is that as soon as I start getting that into my head, that sexual chemistry idea, yeah. even once I commit and marry, there's this part of my brain that starts to wonder, could it be better? Well, it makes you, maybe it's the dopamine trigger. Like you've, you've kind mm-hmm. of Pavlovianly yeah. made yourself think that, oh, I got to keep my eye open for that right. better partner. Yeah. And then oftentimes that mentality goes hand in hand with the idea that sex is about physical pleasure. Right, exactly. That's what makes you a good sexual partner. And we forget the emotional connection uh-huh. with intimacy. We forget the spiritual connection with intimacy. That's right. The people that were abstaining, they were thinking about intimacy more 
collectively. And so even if it wasn't the most physically pleasurable sex we've ever had, I connected with you emotionally yeah. and spiritually, and, and that was still really satisfying for me. And we're together, and it's and we're a fan. Yeah, there's so much more to it, isn't right. there? Man. Last but not least, uh, the, the other um, myth or, I guess, reason not to get married is you're going to lose your independence, which we kind of talked about. But right. you're, you're going to lose all freedom. Right. Yeah, that's, that's – yeah. You mean it's ball and chain. Yep. That I can't do those things yeah. that I want to do anymore. And, and again, to to a degree, like a lot of these myths, there can be a kernel of truth in that. Because uh-huh. now, as we talked about, you do need to negotiate with another person. Right. But the idea that life is over when you're married is problematic, not just for the fact that, as we talked about, it's not true. But because oftentimes, if I hold that internally, when I make that transition, I'm thinking about it as a transition of loss, not right. of gain is that I'm going through this and, yeah, I love you and I like this relationship, but, man, I'm going to always kind of think about my single years as this great opportunity. And, again, oftentimes that can linger. And and when we inevitably fight mm-hmm. and we have those bad days or bad weeks, I'm going to start thinking to myself, man, I remember how remember much happier I was when I was single. When I could just play video games? Yeah, that seems kind of nice. Long. And, and we lose that sense of commitment huh. sometimes. And so so holding that particular myth sometimes – can actually be a risk factor right. for having a good marriage. Yeah. I wonder if sometimes we think we're more independent than we are. Mm-hmm. We're really just dependent, you know. Yeah. And then we get into a marriage and we find out that we are addicted to video games or we right. were just we were we weren't as independent as we thought. We were just kind of lazy and we didn't want to have to be disciplined. Yeah. Or we use the word independence to really mean selfish. Exactly. No, exactly. I, I like to be selfish right now. <laughs> And marriage is going to is going to hurt my ability to be selfish. Isn't which is that true? But like even the Declaration of Independence, there's something more than being independent. That's right. great. You got to get you got to get independent. Mm-hmm. But eventually, you want to be interdependent. You want to use your independence and freedom with someone else to create something bigger. Yeah, we're an independent right. union. Exactly. I like that metaphor we're going. With. That is really cool. Yeah, man, it's like you thought about this, Bray. It's almost like it's my job. It's like you study it every day. Um, well, in the end. Okay, do you? I don't see how this changes. I mean, short of us teaching it, talking it, pushing people more to understand, it just seems like the the natural tendencies of society today are going against marriage. Yeah, I I actually do think one thing that we can do, and this is something that um, my graduate school advisor and I actually talk about and, and do a couple of things related to, is is pushing, not necessarily attacking the myths and the negativity, which is important. But right, like yeah. you said, we have that tendency anyway. It's building up the positive examples. Yeah. Showing is, the, Yeah. The, talking more about these great couples we have that have been married for 30, 40, 50 mm-hmm. years and celebrating that. Yeah. You know, getting back to celebrating healthy relationships in our society, I think, can show, particularly young adults, that there are good positive role models out there. There's good mentors out there for what healthy relationships look like. And yeah, not every relationship in marriage is going to look like that. There's going to be people that, that struggle in their marriage, and divorce is always going to happen. Right. But look, here are good, positive role models for you, because that's what's kind of lacking. Well, that's what we need. Yeah, that's a, then that becomes the attractor. Now everyone wants that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I want that. Right. Exactly. And, you can, and if we could find those models in our own lives, our mm-hmm. own community. Yeah. And maybe be those models. Exactly. Yeah, and for most people, that's, that's really all they have right now is I can look to my mom and dad. And then I've – hopefully they were a good example <laughs> yeah. or they're not. Yeah. But then outside of that, there's not a lot of – again, you look at TV, movies. You look at what we just put out in our culture. There's not a lot of really positive examples. Mm. Um, maybe that's what we should be doing on Relate. 
the Relate Institute. You, you need to start doing video vignettes of the greatest couples of all time. We are starting to do some video. We did. Our, we actually released our first one this well, I gotta week. Go it was on pornography, this. though, so it oh. wasn't about wah, wah, re- well, it was wah, about wah. relationships. But are you on it? Do you talk? I'm. I'm the voiceover. Well, well you're, you've got a face for television. Yeah. Yeah, we can't put me on the video. <laughs> You're the voiceover. You've got a voice for radio and television. Well, we appreciate you. Dr. Brian Willoughby, you can go check out the website, relateinstitute.com, or go to his uh, personal website, drbrianwilloughby.com. drbrianwilloughby.com. Really, he's got, he's got the answers. He's young. He's hip. Uh, who's your mentor? Uh, Dr. Bill Doherty. Bill Doherty. William Doherty. Yep. He is the guru of rituals and finding the the great iconic uh, people. He's a great guy, man. He's your man. Mm-hmm. What a, a chip off the old will or a chip off the old uh, block. That's pretty cool. Go check out drbrianwilloughby.com and uh, relateinstitute.com. Good stuff. We'll take a break. Come back to a quick wrap up of this first or second hour of the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. I love it when uh, Dr. Willoughby comes on. Because off-air, I ask him a million other questions that you don't hear. But in the, in the end, there's so many myths that we just got to blow up. He, he blew up about four. But now, Ben, now that you've heard this, are you ready to go get married? I'll probably have to meet someone first. Well, yeah, you'd probably have to date someone first. Yes. Do you date much, Ben? Yeah. How often I, would you say you date? It's sporadic. Sometimes I date more than others. Like once a year, once a month, once a week? Um. So I went on a date like before I went on a mission to Germany. Yeah. One time. You went one but, time. And then so, so, so you're going to go on another one. You, how long ago was that? Three years ago? Three years. So I was thinking maybe. Maybe another one soon? Yeah, I try like once every four years-ish. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yep. It's going to be a very long road for you, son. Uh, The funny thing is I've got like 20 people that would date you today. Yeah, it's... They're just waiting for that four-year mark. Yeah, I can can only... Do one or two? No, I don't believe. No, yeah, no. You got to pace yourself. Like you got to understand, like my reasoning. Uh, yeah, I, I don't. I'm not sure you understand your reasoning, do you? Yeah, my reasoning's bull. I told my son very simply: three hundred dates, three hundred dates, you'll find your wife. And he's like, "What?" So if you want the three hundred dates to take you twenty years, like Ben's case, it'll take you thousands, thousands of years. <laughs> um, but one of the cool things that uh, we had a guy on our show uh, from the University of Utah talking about the fact that 29 to 30 is the best, supposedly the age, the best age to get married if you don't want to get divorced. Okay. So if you don't want to be divorced, 29-year-olds, that's the age. However, and Dr. Willoughby just blew it up, except that's just to avoid divorce. If you actually want to be happily married – and have the best chance of making it, 
and feel marital satisfaction, 23, no, 22 to 25 is the ideal age. Different than 29. I think most of the millennials are on the 29 track. Ben, like at your rate, you're on the, you know, you're on the 1,500-year track. Yeah, it's kind of like when people get sentenced to jail for 2,000 years. Yeah. That's kind of the reasoning I placed with it. Okay. The analogy, at least. Well, let's – I'm going to help you work on this because we – you may not remember, remember, but your predecessor, James Birdsall, we – he came in having never dated ever in his life, no human being. I'm not sure if that's accurate, but it seems accurate. And we – within about a year, he was married. He found an incredible partner. They dated. Bada boom, bada bing. They got married. They're happily married now. So there's no reason Benjamin James Wasden, no reason that you can't be married in a year. Okay. So are you going to line the dates up for me? Well, we might have to. I'm not afraid. Hey. You have to date the people I pick. I will date anybody you give me. Holy cow. That's great. Okay. You're dead. Prepare to die. Uh, interesting stuff. We will eventually get Ben at least dating. We, who knows? You know, might take a while. But we'll get him dating. He's a catch. If anybody wants to date Ben, give us a call, 1-855-CHAT-BYU. If you're a parent that would like a really great German-speaking, brat-eating guy, give us a call, 1-855-CHAT-BYU. Or look us up on Twitter, at Dr. Matt Show. You can also just email me. Dr. Matt Downs in a Gmail. We'll 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 hook you up. We'll you know find your partner. Stick with us, folks. Hour number two. It's in the books. We'll come back next hour. More tools right here on the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at one eight five five Chat BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program, and top of the morning to you. It's hour number three of the Matt Townsend Show. You Irish? It's a very Irish thing to say. Thank you. Top of the morning to you. Every day. They're magically delicious. Is that the extent of your That's, Irish those, sayings? Those are the two. Um, that and the breakfast And the cereal. Blarney Stone. Oh, there you go. Hey, uh, I have some Irish in me. I have some Scottish. Okay. Yeah. I think that's all I've got in me. Ever since I had a, I like made a Scottish friend, I started having less respect for Irish people. Really? Just wow. because like they... That sounds rude. Oh, wow. yeah, it is rude, but like the Scottish and the Irish don't get along. Yeah, yeah. But is and that... So like I heard all the bad things about the Irish people. When, you... when did you make that friend? Because is that when you started doing all the Irish dancing? Um, it was actually Scottish dancing. So, I was really embracing the culture. It's okay. like river dancing your every yeah, day. Guy, no one can river dance like it's a Ben. Have you toes. seen Ben? Yeah, it's crazy. That guy can point his toes. Some people can't point their toes very well. But he he's a prima ballerina. It takes yeah. a lot of practice. 
We're just trying to create a visual for you listeners out there. Hey, um, and as always, we are sorry. And as always, yep, it turned a few <laughs> stomachs, which is, you know, we're like, that's just what happens. Hey, uh, here's the deal. So, not to brag, but you may have heard I got a grandbaby. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and she's coming home today. Today? Today. You just got the word? We thought she was going to come home on Friday. She's coming home today. And she's cute as can be. So granddad is happy. Both of them. Is there going to be like a party and celebration no, banners? No, because we don't want her to get sick. So oh. no one's invited over. But <sighs> such oh, a relief. We did that. Our, our physician told – or uh, pediatrician told us limit your child's exposure to other people for a while. Sure. No, exactly. It was the perfect excuse well, not to associate with anybody. For it was you awesome. because you're antisocial. <laughs> There were like parties. They bring your kid. No, nah, nah, we've we're been good. told not to. We're good. And, oh, I'm sorry. You know. But he's 15 now. Can't we go? <laughs> no, we're trying to limit his exposure. <laughs> it is so so sad. It was great. Speaking of exposure, did you hear about the Austrian model? No, Australian. Sorry, model who spent three months on the run. Uh, she escaped from a police car um, window while handcuffed. And she uh, she escaped away. Now, a lot of those windows don't roll down all the way. No. So she's probably halfway down. Yeah, squeeze out. And then and some of them have bars on them, too. So she yeah. was a tiny little girl. <laughs> tiny little girl. Renee Elizabeth Tarbuck, 34, was so proud of her Houdini-style escape that she sent selfies of her wrists. By the way, which still had the police, cuff, police handcuffs on her wrists. So she selfied these pictures and sent them out. Again, not a good idea. No. Ever. No. If you're running from the cops, by it, the way, did you hear how much Hawaiian tropic oil she had to use to actually slide through the window? Probably quite a bit. Quite a bit. Two gallons. Oof. That's a lot of oil. It's flammable. <laughs> uh, the friend, she sent these uh, pictures of her uh, handcuffs to the friend, uh, Taryn Le- Lemos, and uh, then the friend promptly gave the selfies to the police. <laughs> what kind of friend is that? Tarbuck was convicted of stealing police handcuffs and escaping lawful custody last month. She was charged with stealing handcuffs. <laughs> they needed something on her. Yeah, they had to hold her because she uh, apparently ran a very profitable drug operation, <laughs> drug trafficking yeah. operation out of her home. So, According to a police report, Tarbuck was arrested on May 11th at a shopping center, handcuffed with her hands behind her back, which you know is exactly how Houdini would do it. And then the two officers who arrested her were busy saving three pedigree dogs, which had run into traffic. Ah, the old dog distraction trick. Let the dogs run and you go the other way. (laughs) Look over there. Tarbuck contorted herself until her handcuffs were in her front of her body, and then she escaped through the window. There you go. Hmm. And she got in her car. What was that? Oh, that's her that's her squeezing herself. Squeezing through the window? All right. We have audio of this from the police car. Took her a while. Yeah. she's. Yeah. Wow. You think the window would break at some point yeah, no, as there's you're a lot putting of pressure. torque on it, but oh well. You know what? Luckily, she was wearing a bikini because that probably- I don't think she was. Oh. I think she's a model. Maybe she has modeled swimwear well, at some point. that changes the whole story. But she me. was in public, so she was probably just wearing clothes. But she didn't. She didn't. Then she didn't oil up. Probably not. Oh, well. Thought that'd be kind of. It was a little racy for a minute. <laughs> but yeah, she had a. Actually, she. Uh, 
I, she had some operation where she was charging, uh, giving out, selling drugs on credit. And then she'd go and try to collect on the oh, debt. Oh, sure, yeah. And then, you know, she had enforcers. Uh-huh. That's <laughs> this a... whole people, employees, all this <laughs> stuff going on. So that's why she got arrested. But it's a brilliant she, plan. I mean, that's exactly away. who you want to lend credit to. It was really interesting. It's a smart, she's a smart woman. Well, yeah. except like, for the part where. Except for the part where she got caught. And broke the law. And broke the law. Yeah. Uh, another parking fraudster, Nigel Graham, was fined for a ticket while in court. A man who illegally parked in a disabled space outside of a court while he was inside admitting to illegally parking in disabled spaces. Yeah. Has been fined. Rule of thumb, if you're in court for a violation. Don't commit that violation. While you're at court. It's you prob- got that, Ben? Yes. I need to go move my bike. <laughs> <laughs> it's the guy that's going to traffic court for a speeding ticket and gets caught speeding. Yeah. It's like, okay, now you're showing a behavioral pattern. Yep. You might want to not show it on that specific day. Right. I mean, again, we don't want to train up violators, you know, criminals. We don't want to teach them how to do their job. We just want to point out that there's a human problem here, and you need to use your head. And I don't know why I looked at Ben when I said that. Anyway, trying to give you the information you need. Not to commit crimes. We don't want this to be about crimes. This isn't a how-to guide. This is a how-not-to guide. This is, this is if you make any mistake. If you, didn't, if you fail to bring your library books back because you forget them in your car. When you're taking library books back, don't leave any in your car. Just kind of makes sense. Seems like a no-brainer. I think there's a process. So it can work in any area. <sighs> Doing what we can. Hey, I got a great show for you. In, in a minute, we're going to um, play an interview that I did with a wonderful uh, guest about how we learn. You know, we might not be learning the way we need to learn, or we may think we're learning a certain way. Uh, which kind of is exactly what we're talking about with this guy that just didn't figure it out. Uh, but Ben Carey will be joining us. Ben is an award-winning science reporter, and uh, we'll be getting to him in just a few minutes. He also works with the New York Times, and he wrote a wonderful uh, book on how we learn the surprising truth about when, where, and why it happens. We'll get to him in a few minutes. But before we do that, let's get to the headlines with Terry. Terry, what's going on around the world? Thanks, Matt. The presidential election were held today. Hillary Clinton would beat several Republican opponents, but not Ben Carson. According to an NBC Wall Street Journal poll of national voters released on Tuesday, Clinton bests real estate mogul Donald Trump, former Florida Governor Jeb Bush, and Florida Senator Marco Rubio, but is tied with Carson at 47%. Clinton did best against Trump, leading 50% to 42% amongst registered voters. So in the hypothetical that we're vo- we're voting today, which isn't the case, we have now just under a year Wow! as the clock ticks down. I have a feeling that's all going to change. Probably. I think once we come back to the middle, everyone will have better opinions yes. and better polling data. Illinois law, Illinois law enforcement has reportedly determined that the police officer whose death was being investigated as a murder was, in fact, a suicide. Fox Lake police officer Joseph uh, Glinowitz it was found dead in the woods in a lakeside community on September 1st. He radioed in that morning about seeing three suspicious-looking men and then was found fatally shot in a remote, marshy area. No evidence was ever found about 
The three men, there was a manhunt. They searched the entire area. Nothing was found. The medical examiner for months said he would determine the cause of death, suicide, or homicide upon receiving further information from the police, citing multiple sources. Uh, Chicago TV station WGN is reporting investigators plan to release a criminology report today that reveals that the officer was allegedly using police department money for personal purchases. The suicide allegedly followed calls to help audit missing police money. Oh, boy. So instead of... Yeah. The narrative he wanted, he ends up, uh, the, the truth comes out that he was uh, possibly involved in some uh, fraud uh, in the police department. The leaders of China and Taiwan will meet Saturday for their first time since splitting in 1949. According to Taiwan's official government news agency, the meeting between the president of China and Taiwan's president will reportedly take place in Singapore and would seemingly signal China's intent to reunify with Taiwan. China has not made an announcement about the meeting as of yet. The White House is tentatively in support of the decision to meet, but is waiting to see what actually comes out of the meeting. So there's that. Volkswagen, they've been under fire for the last few months of some issues with their with their cars. Again, Volkswagen recalling nearly 92,000 cars in the U.S. to fix mechanical problems that can knock out the power to the assisted brakes. The recall includes the Beetle, the Golf, uh, Jetta, and Passat oh, models boy. from 2015 and 2016. The German automaker says a part of the camshaft can shear off, causing loss of vacuum in the power brakes. It can lengthen the stopping distance and possibly cause a crash. Boy. The, the engines will also go into a reduced power mode, mode to avoid further damage, so your car will not function as it normally should. The fi- a fix is expected by the end of March, so, so there's that to look forward so to. So not only are you polluting <laughs> the world more than ever, you actually can't stop your car. Possibly. This is dangerous. Until then, VW owners uh, are told to keep driving their cars. You'll you'll, you'll be fine. And uh, they should report any problems to, yeah, you're to fine. dealers. Keep driving them. <laughs> In fact, I'd drive more. Drive more. <laughs> Just keep going. And this, uh, and finally, we'll, we'll end on this story. Police say a, a woman called an ambulance to bring her to her boyfriend's house. This happened in upstate New York. According to authorities, 28-year-old Cassandra Lewis was arrested by the police following the report of alleged abuse of an ambulance service. The police say that she called 911, reported a medical emergency. After she was transported to the hospital, she signed herself out of the hospital shortly after the arrival, using the ambulance service solely to get to the hospital because it was close to her boyfriend's house. Uh. So then she leaves the hospital, walks over to her boyfriend's house, and that, that was instead of using a bus or right. calling a friend for a car, an she had Uber. the ambulance pick her up, calling an Uber. So, yeah, she's uh, arrested for charge of one count falsely reporting an incident, which is a misdemeanor. Holy cow. Again, don't do that. Uh, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Ben, did you get that? Don't do that. Yeah, he got it. Very slow to get it, but he got it. Um, interesting stuff. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Ben Carey will be talking to us about the power of thought, how we learn when, where, and why it happens. Maybe get you thinking more about your learning. Ask yourself, what was the last thing you learned that really stuck in your head? We'll take a break. We'll come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, from an an early age... It's drilled into our heads that restlessness, distraction, and ignorance are the enemies of success. We are told that learning is all about self-discipline, right? That we must confine ourselves 
to designated study areas, turn off the music, maintain a strict ritual if you want to be uh, able to ace that test, memorize that presentation, or nail that piano recital. I mean, how many times have your parents said, turn off all the other stuff, turn off the TV, focus, do this one thing? But what if almost everything that we were told about learning is actually wrong? And what if there is a way to achieve more with less effort when it comes to our learning? Um, I did an interview earlier in the year uh, with Benedict Carey, also known as Ben Carey. He's the uh, a New York Times columnist, the winner of a uh, uh, Science Reporter Award, and is the author of the book How We Learn, The Surprising Truth About When, Where, and Why It Happens. And uh, we're going to play that interview for you now. I started out the interview with the simple truth or the simple question: What are some of the truths that you have learned about how we learn? There are a whole lot of them. Uh, the science of learning and memory is about a hundred years old, and uh, the weird thing is that th- those scientists haven't really talked to teachers much. So <laughs> a lot of this stuff is just not known by teachers or parents. Um, some of it's known instinctually, <clears throat> but I'll give you a few examples. Yeah. <clears throat> One very simple one is that by breaking up study time. And this is advice your mom or your dad may have given you, you know. Yeah. Honey, don't do it all tonight. Split it up, do an hour tonight and an hour tomorrow. It's a very simple thing. Turns out to be uh, a very valuable um, technique when you're trying to memorize information. In fact, it can double the amount that you recall a week later on a test. So just think about it for a second. You're not spending any more time you know, you're doing the same amount of time. Uh-huh. You're not working any harder, so you've just split your time. It's all you've done. Um, so it's not about time, and, and it's not about difficulty. Effect. Yeah. yeah. So that, that is one example, Matt. There are a whole lot of other ones. Um, now, is that, is that, this, this is funny. How long ago was that, do you know when that research was created? About 100 years ago. <laughs> yeah, the, the founder of the field. Yeah. Um, uh, the one who found that didn't know what to make of it. It took took some time before, uh, you know, later researchers figured out kind of what's happening. Um, but once you learn what's happening, it's <clears throat> kind of obvious on the one hand and not so obvious on the other. You really begin to see there's a whole bunch of things that essentially we've taught we've been taught are not good for learning, mm-hmm. like distractions and breaking up study time and mixing up practice, practicing different things at once. Uh, that turn out to be very helpful. So, so that's the uh, that's the idea. Um, and a lot of these things are being incorporated, sort of, or trying to, their attempts to incorporate them into schools. But that's going to take a long time, and uh, it's a lot better just to learn them yourself. Yeah, I mean, Benedict, it's been a hundred years. Like, <laughs> right. this shouldn't this should be out by now, right? Isn't that amazing? This is incredible. Like, give us some more. Like, you were saying distractions, because as, as a parent, you know, my mom did everything she could to eliminate all distractions so I could sit in a room and listen to the, you know, the the humming of the light. <laughs> well, so there's a few things in there, Matt. Um, you know, we're told to find one study place and to eliminate all distractions. Both things are wrong. Uh, okay. Uh, the... Uh, Changing up your study location, just the location, helps you. Uh, it multiplies the cues you have to, you know, retain, I'm sorry, store and later retain information. So, so kids who are restless who are moving around should be encouraged as long as they are, in fact, studying and not just 
you know, on video games. Um, because well, that gives us more cues, you said. The cues meaning I have, I mean, I might have the smell of being under a peach tree or I might have the light or I mean, all these different things would re- help me retain the learning. Exactly. The, 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 the changing up locations for sure. So you move your books around, you know, you're in the kitchen, you're in your, your room, maybe you take it out on the porch, maybe you take it out to the local cafe. All those things um, work to kind of multiply and enrich the information you're storing, hmm. making it more available later on. That's the idea. Interesting. Uh, the other thing you mentioned was distractions. You know, this is a big deal now. Parents are worried about it because of the everyone's got a phone and we're all looking at it all the time. Um, distractions, of course, can be terrible if you're if you need continuous attention, like if you're sitting in a lecture or you're driving or something. But if you're trying to problem solve, <clears throat> and that goes for both you know math problems and and writing type of problems, you know, you can't figure out how to get yourself out of a sentence or into a next paragraph. Um, a, if you run out of ideas, and distraction is an effective way to increase the likelihood you can solve it. Hmm. And part of the reason is, <clears throat> well, by that, by distraction, I mean any number of things. You could jump on Instagram, you could call a friend, you could go for a walk. Uh, it's a matter of sort of loosening some of your fixed ideas that are blocking you. Um, and so... Distractions can be bad, of course, we all know that, um, but can be very effective learning uh, tools in certain contexts, like when you're stuck. That is so interesting. I mean, again, it's because almost you you feel like you're doing it wrong. You you may have felt like you were doing it wrong because I like a little music on. I like to, to be able to get up and maybe walk around while I'm thinking about something, not just sitting there and doing it. And it might make sense that maybe naturally my body was figuring this out anyway. Right. I mean, that is the big picture, Matt, is that, uh, you know, humans have been around for some million years or so. And, you know, school, as we know it, studying and homework and all that, has only been around for a few thousand. So maybe it's, that's the big picture, is the brain really learned to learn, human brain, in a whole variety of ways. And so if you feel restless, yes. I mean, that's part of the way the brain learned <clears throat> for all those years sort of foraging for food and shelter. Um, and uh, if you want to listen to music and change it up and all those things. It's, in a way, it's like your body telling you this is, this is the way to do it. Hmm. It's only, it's, it's the biases about we think the best way to learn. Those biases come from, um, you know, school-based learning. Yeah. Yeah, like this. Yeah, isn't that interesting? And we really are going to spend our entire life learning, and only a little bit of it in school. Yeah, and I think that uh, adults again instinctively get this, and so you know, for example, if you have to learn something, um, you sort of <clears throat> become familiar with this yourself enough. I suspect that you know, you know, you have to take breaks, you have to kind of walk around, change it up. You are in charge of your own time, and you're able to do that now a little more right. than when you're a kid, of course, where, you know, everyone's making you sit still. <laughs> it's, so, <laughs> it's so true. What, uh, what, uh, what are there any other surprising just issues or things you've discovered that you thought, wow, I never can, I can't even believe it? Yes, I mean, it's, it's, it's full of that, the science of learning and memory, it's called cognitive psychology, is, is full of this stuff. Um, one of them is to do with sleep. You know, we all kind of suspect that sleep is uh, connected to learning or it affects learning. That's true. Is considered a learning consolidator, kind of a filter, something that helps you 
decide what's important because so much stuff is coming in your head during the daytime and you're awake, right? So, right. So sleep acts as this kind of filter. What's cool about it is that sleep has a number of stages, and those stages appear to be specialized to consolidate specific types of information. Hmm. So when you're preparing for tests, for example, <clears throat> you can manage your sleep if you're going to you know, stay up late or get up early. You can manage it depending on what you've got to prepare for. So you do one thing, for example, if you're studying for a French test or you know, something that's going to demand lots of memorization, and you would do another thing um, if you were preparing for a math test or, for example, recital, you know, something that requires motor memory. Uh-huh. So who knew, right, I mean, that you could actually use sleep science, learning sleep science, to better prepare for, you know, to yeah. sort of suit your preparation for what you're, you're yeah, doing. Yeah, and pick your, pick your time. Yeah. yeah, it might be better to stay up a little bit later or get up a little bit earlier. I mean, isn't that fascinating? No, it's 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 just great stuff, and it's um, and it's not hard. And no. I think personally, my shtick on this is it should be taught directly to kids at a, you know at a pretty young age. Yeah, it's uh, it's not uh, it's not rocket science. <laughs> it is brain science, however. It is, and, it is. Uh, and it's the useful kind. That's right. So. And you don't have to be a brain surgeon to read it. And yet, I think it's powerful. Teach it to your kids. Let's take a break. We're talking with Ben Carey, again, the author of the book, How We Learn the Surprising Truth About When, Where, and Why It Happens by Benedict Carey. We'll take a break and come right back. I really want to find out if this new technology kind of world we're living in, you know, if, if that plays better into this type of learning or, or what. We'll find out. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. You'll uh, listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We are on the phone with Ben Carey, who is the author of the book, a New York Times. Uh, uh, actually, he wrote for the New York Times since 2004, and um, he's written the book, How We Learn the Surprising Truth About When, Where, and Why It Happens, which was published in September of 2014. He lives in New York City. Benedict Carey, thanks for being here, my friend. Uh, thanks very much for having me. This is a really, I think, important book. Uh, we, we a lot of times we we believe our the learning is is our you know our education systems process. It's our teacher's job, and yet um, really it's it's a personal thing. Humans need to learn how they learn and get the truth about it, and that's why parents could read a book like this and just take it right to their family, right? Absolutely. I mean, parents are really the ideal audience for this. Um, and I think you, and you hit on something there. I mean, we were never taught how to learn. No one, no one ever yeah. teaches us that. We just, we're just given lectures about what's right and wrong in terms of learning. You know, get yourself to your room and open the books and, you know, put your head in kind of thing. Um, and that's not helpful. And, you know, in the end, uh, and I think, I think a lot of us, I'll speak for myself, longed for some mentoring mm-hmm. um, to be a student and never got it. You just never get it. You're kind of on your own in a way, and and so 
I think for anyone, parents and kids for sure, um, it's nice to know what the science says about learning. I mean, you, at least you can, you can be your own mentor a little bit. Um, and so that's the idea with this book. Do you, do you sense any difference with this new age where, you know, it's so technologically driven, we are so app-driven, and, you know, maybe the attention span of our our each of us is shrinking. Um, what what do you sense is going to happen with how we learn in the next, you know, couple of generations? I tend to think, Matt, that the, uh, the innovations and the technology are uh, can be indeed exploited to, to sort of deepen learning, mm. that is, that they can be extremely helpful. Now, we talked about this a little bit in the first break. Um, you know, if you're constantly distracted when you need to pay attention, it's not, yeah. not going to work for you, okay? Um, but here's what I think uh, about the sort of technolo- technological change. You know, you have on your phone now all sorts of capabilities, video, audio, little short movies, things that your friends send, pictures, photos, podcasts, books, all that stuff is available in your pocket. Um, And really, we all learn in a whole variety of ways, and I think that the technology is allowing people to do just that. Um, I'll I'll, I'll give you an example from the newspaper. I mean, I work with the New York Times. I'm a science writer there. And of course, traditionally, that's been old media. We, you know, we write stories. We, we print them uh, on the page. Of course, we've had to sort of change everything and try to innovate uh, at the paper. And one of the things that's being done, and effectively, is to present stories uh, not as simply printed text or even printed text with photos, but text, photos, podcasts, slideshows, mm. videos. Yeah. So you need we have about half a dozen different ways for people to receive the information, and as we discussed before, changing the way that you approach a particular kind of information. Mixing it up is good. It's helpful. It multiplies the ways you sort of uh, are absorbing the information. <clears throat> That's so, so true. It's good to see the podcast, etc. And, and I guess that makes it so, then if you incorporate all the other lessons about breaking up the time, how we how we bring it into us, and um, and kind of mixed, it's almost a mixed methods approach. Man, you actually might be able to leverage it even even deeper. Yeah, I think you'll be able to leverage this. Uh, look, we're all somewhat highly distractible. That was the truth. That was the case well before uh, all of the social media sort of swept the you know mm-hmm. swept the world. Um, we distracted ourselves continuously. I'll speak for myself. I certainly did so. Uh, well before the iPhones and so on. Um, <clears throat> but you're right. I think that uh, if, and this will happen, um, the, you know, smart, smarter people than I will put together the science, which is independent of technology, by the way. All the scientific things that I write about in that book is things you can apply yourself. You don't need any fancy computer stuff. But they'll put together that with computer applications, right, that, right. that basically are built on the, you know, the foundation of the science itself. So, uh, and those, some of those I'm, I'm, you know, will be excellent. Mo- a lot of them will be bad. I'm not going to... Uh, right. Record, you know, how it's it not, is. Everything's not but, perfect, yeah. Right, everything's not perfect, and a lot of the stuff will be junk, but, but there'll be some good stuff that will come out of that. And, um, you know, uh, yeah, you have a whole bunch of different ways you can learn through your phone, and I think that to the extent that that's built on you know, the science of learning, the cognitive psychology of learning can be very effective. What do you suggest 
as we as we kind of um, think about this, like sitting down with our kids, how do you how do you envision that happening? Do you, like, what do you do to to do that? Do you just sit down and start teaching them ideas, or or how do you suggest we as parents teach our children to learn? You, it depends on the kid's age, but the you know this is. The book that I've written is not long. I just sort of all read it pretty quickly. Uh, it'll give you a handful of techniques, about ten of them, um, and and a big idea about how they work together and so on, um, and how they're applicable. Now, depending on the kid's age, you can um, at some point you can teach them directly. But before then, I would say that's about middle school. Before then. Oh, you can do all sorts of stuff that makes studying a whole lot more fun and more effective. And I'll give you one example. Yeah. Um, well, we've already talked about switching locations. I mean, if you've had, you know, I've kids, uh, yeah, they're grown now, but, um, you know, they hated doing homework and they hated sitting still. They're very restless. So you can use that in your favor. So you can move them around. In other words, you don't have to be yelling at them to get back in the room. And <laughs> get in your room. Around as That's long it. as they continue to work. All right, that's already more fun than yeah. <laughs> standard homework, um, and it's a better way to deepen the actual memory. Now, you can also have kids, depending on their age, play teacher, hmm. which is a great way. It's a, the actual technique is called self-testing or self-examination because you're having to draw on your knowledge and teach it to someone else. Now, kids of a certain age love playing teacher. Um, I mean, you can't, you know, th- that that. They love doing that, and that's a way of <clears throat> really deepening yeah. the study experience. And it's you know it's a ton more fun than again just having to strap into a chair. So uh, that's those are two examples. You bet. Uh, the point is you can you can basically adapt these techniques to uh, you know whatever your kid's doing. I, and <laughs> I've seen like it. I mean, a great thing today is let your kids as they get older and turn into teens, let them teach you about technology. <laughs> Yes, because yes, yes. that's where a lot of us are behind anyway. And, and man, what a powerful way when you put them in that role as teacher, then you can have them even start teaching the other kids just, you know, math or whatever stuff they've got to learn. We got about 30 seconds, Ben. And so just teach us. I mean, what's the one thing that we all ought to remember when it comes to our learning, our our growth? Um, what's the key? There's a couple of these keys. Take, take the pressure off yourself to try to live up to some ideal of how to study because there is none. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and the other one is, <clears throat> you know, no one ever got learning a 101 in the class, but it's there, it exists, and it allows you, most of all, it's the best part, to be tactical about your study. You don't have to pray that you're doing it right or wonder if you're doing it right. You can build techniques so you know you're doing it right. Mm-hmm. So those are the two big things. That's great. Relax, and relax, relax and, 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 and have tactics. Yeah, learn and, and, and learn how you learn and then build tactics around it. Exactly. It seems, yeah. it seems like easy learning. <laughs> it's never going to be easy. It never is, it is it? easier. Oh, it's so true. Well, we appreciate you. Again, Benedict Carey is his name and the name of his book, um, it really is, it's just such an interesting idea to me, How We Learn. The Surprising Truth About When, Where, and Why It Happens. It was published in 2014. Thanks again, Benedict. Good stuff, folks. Learning. Learning 101. It's true. When did you ever sit down and learn how to learn? We don't do that, do we? We'll take a break, my friends. When we come back, we'll be sitting at the feet of two incredible brains, science brains, 
BYU Sports Nation. We'll be talking with them up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Everybody to the Matt Townsend Show. Little Benny and the Jets to uh, toss it down to our good buddies down there at BYU Sports Nation. Hello, Spencer and Michael. How are you guys? Fantastic. Thank you. How are you? That song, I'm excellent, and that song is a tribute to your new offspring. Thank you. You remembered. Of course I did. Little you miss me? We call you Benny and we call your baby Jets. Just oh, nice. Jet without the S, right? Are there two T's in the name Jet? There are two T's. And my mom, I can't believe I'm telling you this on national radio, right. but when I was a little boy, she used to call me Spenny. So it could be Spenny and the Jet. Oh, how cute is that? Well, I, have, I have a Spencer, and we call him Spenny. Do you really? Uh-huh. And when he's in the hot tub, we call him and the Jets. <laughs> it's the cutest thing. Oh my heck! Congratulations! That this is a big deal. How many how many children do you have now, Spence? Two. That was number two. Ah, oh, aren't they cute? Yep. Brittany and I are playing man to man now. I know this is great, man. <laughs> Wait till you got to do the zone. The zone defense is where you've got so many kids. You just—it's actually more the prevent. You just try to prevent people from dying. Well, then your your oldest gets older, and you recruit him to play on your team. You would think so. Yeah, that's a great theory. <laughs> what, what do you call my situation, when Michael? I what are you? Kids? How many? You have no kids? No kids. Do you want some? Because I've Man, got a I've got a board operator up here that needs a fatherly figure. I'm trying to talk Michael into applying for the Bachelor <laughs> next season. Michael, we need to get you married, man. Are you, you know what? The Bachelor actually called me up. <laughs> I'm dead serious. Did they really? Yeah, when they came to Utah. Oh, you'd be a great one. Yeah. What? I said no. I was like, come on. Well, I'd rather. I don't want my legacy because that would overshadow anything I did with football. Well, it depends. I'd be remembered as the guy that went on The Bachelor. But you'd go down in flames. <laughs> yeah. You would do that. too much pressure. Being that would be horrible. Bachelor, like everyone, all eyes are on you. You got to like. Plus, imagine having I to kiss, kiss that I'm many sorry, girls. Man. You'd have to kiss all those girls. There's oh, some yeah. validity the, to the, uh, the going down in flames thing or being at least being remembered for that the most. Think about Jesse Palmer. Okay? Oh, yeah. Every College time I see him quarterback now. at yeah. Florida. He's on Good Morning America now. See the and fall. He he has dominated on ESPN, college football analyst on SEC Network. Most people still remember him as oh yeah, he was on The Bachelor. Right. It's like oh yeah, his yeah his his assessment of sports is irrelevant now. It's just like yeah, he gave. Flowers. That's what I'm saying. I and mean, he's did, really good. Did it launch his career a little bit though? Maybe it would help. I mean, it would help your about. career. You'd make more money. But do I want that? To be my no. legacy. You know what, Michael? You can get you it? can get no. you can get married so much easier. Just pay me a couple grand, we'll take care of it. <laughs> well, like bride orders? Yeah, I'll get you one from whatever country you want. <laughs> I I had a client that said that I don't even need to date anymore. I just I got a catalog. And I and I I gasped. And I said, "Is that really?" He's like, "Yeah, I've got uh, I've got one coming over right now that I'm meeting." No. Yeah. I'm not Real. even going to tell you from what country. Well, I'm not, I'm not loaded, so it'd have to be, you know the what, deeper end of the market. Well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that sounds horrible. Hey, where um, is this conversation going? I don't know. It started out so well. I'm like, that's so funny. Wait, babies but, but in the circle of life. Is this an option? 
<laughs> Let's go back to the cute baby thing. I don't know if you heard, Spence, yeah. but I have a grandbaby now. I'm a grandfather. Congratulations. Congrats. When did that happen? Um, it happened on, on uh, Halloween. Wow. So just two days after mm-hmm. my little boy yeah. was born. And amazingly, right after that, I blew my right hip out. That's what happens to grandpas. <laughs> You're not old enough to be a grandfather. I'm not. I slipped, I slipped on my walker and fell. <laughs> it was horrible. On your walker. Yeah. I was using my walker because my plantar came back. No. Oh. It, it's all good. <laughs> um, it's the greatest thing in the world. And so to the degree that you love little Jet, mm-hmm. uh, let me just tell you, when you're a grandparent, it's like the same amount of love, but you walk away. It is the coolest thing you'll ever see. You hug him, you kiss him, mm, you just love him, and then you say, bye, have fun feeding. Yeah, how about that? Yeah. Oh, it's the best thing ever. So that's someday, similar, Michael— similar to you'll, an uncle. That's similar to the uncle role exactly, right now. Exactly. Yeah. See, Michael, you'll be there. We got you. Thank, wink, wink. Winkity-wink. Hey, um, did you guys hear the great news? Well, besides the fact that you're a grandfather. That's the and, best news. And you got some catalog. Thing. And I got a catalog for you. I'll bring it down tomorrow. It's huge. Um, no, but uh, this guy won the Ironing Man. You've heard of the Iron Man, right? Yes. Right. Have you ever heard of the Ironing Man? No. Uh, it's a new contest where a man, a man has apparently broken the record for ironing continuously for 100 hours. He wasn't running. He wasn't doing a triathlon. Just, he was just ironing. But it's, I think it's going to be on ESPN today. You know what? I even saw something called extreme ironing oh, where geez. they would go up to like cliffs and – And iron um, off like the top they, of – They'd do like on a slack line between two, <laughs> two skyscrapers. I don't know. People are bored. What's with ironing? Uh, by the way, the previous record was 80 hours, that little wimp, um, only 80 hours of ironing. This guy though pressed 1,157 items. That is nuts. Why? I hey, don't ask why. You know, it'd be cool though Just if you had some it. like website where you could send in a couple shirts if you wanted to. Oh, wouldn't that be great? That he would do for the show. Wouldn't that be so? So if he's doing the contest, you could take all your ironing over might there. As well, yeah, might as well get some actual work done. I just want you to know that it's there's other options, folks. If if people don't like sports, you can go see the Ironing Man <laughs> and just absorb it. Would would you? Would you stack them up against any of the women in your catalog? Sorry. Too oh, far, yeah. Too far. Yeah. No, but I totally would. <laughs> but I'll bring you the catalog. You'll be amazed. Thanks. No, they, those catalogs do exist. And you it's not like you just – but you just meet the people. You got to date them. You don't just order them. You know, and they don't – you don't – it's not – they're not built to order. Okay. It's basically like a dating site. Yeah. It's a dating a site. And then you got to talk to them, and then you eventually bring them over, and then you meet them, and they get their visa, and then you date them, and then if it all goes well, you marry them. And then the neat thing is about, I don't know, nine years later, you're divorced. Do you want to date somebody that's in a catalog? Yeah. Because a dating site is all like quick moving. If you're in a catalog, that means that you're planning on being single for a long time. Well. They're not printing catalogs every week or every month. Well, they are in these countries. Oh, okay. You know. I didn't know it was big business. I'm so out that. of this conversation right now. Let, let's bring Spencer back in. Spence, um, here's the deal. Jerem was sick yesterday. I don't yeah. know if you know that. Yep, uh, I do know that. He caught a cold. Mm-hmm. So is so did did they bring you back early? No. Okay. This was always the plan. What I, just, I heard was that they couldn't keep you away. You had today off and you're like, No. No, you no, want to be a part of I'm this. I'm working. You, Listen, I'm I have us. interviews like a, with Bronco like Mendenhall. Farm boy of 
and Radio. some football players later this afternoon. Mm-hmm. So I was like, if I'm going to go in to do those anyway, I might as well go in and do the yeah, show you gotta as be well. There. That was see, that's that's why you, you that's why you're the real deal. That's discipline. I've been off since last Thursday. Oh, we know, we know. We've been working since last Thursday. Oh, since last Thursday, I don't want to. Say I had a rule in high school: if I if I was sick and I missed school, then I would also have to miss practice. That was my mom's rule. That's it. Your mom's brilliant. Yeah. So then you couldn't play days the game. Where I was sick, but wasn't that sick? Mm-hmm. Wink, wink. I, would, I I just went to school. I just, <laughs> I just sucked it up, even though I was tired and didn't do my homework. I'd oh yeah. To school anyway. My mom had a rule that I had to go to school unless I had an aneurysm validated by a brain scan. <laughs> my mom was really tough. My mom okay. let me stay home from school to watch the NCAA tournament. Wow. Your mom rocks. Yeah. No, yeah. Sick days at my house were actually awesome because my mom would make us food and oh, man. smoothies, go rent us a movie, so some if, blockbuster. So if you were legitimately sick, it was still like a bonus. Oh, it was the best <laughs> Yes, day I feel terrible today. And That's on legitimate. top of it, I'm sick. <laughs> so glad That's I'm sad. sick. Are you yeah. guys still doing your show today, or are, are. you just going to do go through the catalog? What do you think? Oh, no. We're doing it. Oh, we're doing it big, oh, man. What's on the show? Michael Elise's beard, first of all. Holy cow. On Brigham Young University campus. Solid. No, I mean, it is legit. I'm trying to break barriers here. Solid okay. as a rock. So yeah. that we'll start there. The okay. second is the first college football playoff rankings were released last night. Oh, cool. And I know BYU's not in that top 25, but something that BYU was trying to do led by Tom Holmo, the athletic director, yeah. was absolutely validated last night. Ooh. And it deals with strength of schedule. Okay. So we'll dive into okay. that. Okay. That's a good topic. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Tim Lacombe, assistant basketball coach on with us. What did he learn in that Saturday night exhibition against Arizona Christian with four starters out? And they had four guys, and not just... Any guys, we're talking about Kyle Collinsworth and Chase Fisher Man, and Corbin Kafusi, yeah. major contributors didn't play in that exhibition. So what did it allow BYU to do? What did he learn from a game like that? That's a great show. Plus, you're going to have the ironing man, Gareth Sanders, as he completes his 2,000th piece of clothing. He'll wow. join us live. That's great video. From the Eastern Sea Ironing Board. <laughs> <laughs> so sad. Okay, sounds like a great show, guys. Go make it happen. You got it, man. Take care. the combo. Love you long time. (laughs) Love you long time. I'll bring you the catalog. Go bring them. See you guys. (laughs) Oh, man. That is crazy town. Good stuff. It's good to have Spence back. Spenny and the Jets. That's cool. That is a cool name, Jet. Man, what if he's just slow? What if that kid is slow? (laughs) Come on, Jet. (laughs) Turn on the Jets. That's funny. We got to talk to him because Spencer's a fast little runner. Hey, here's a few uh, more uh, news stories for you that we've got to get to. We've, um, you may have heard about uh, a man running for the Ukrainian city council seat under the name of Emperor Palpatine. Palpatine, the villain from the Star Wars film. Yes, he won the Ukrainian city council seat. He's in, folks. Sure, he is a Sith Lord, but he is now is also known as Alexander Borovic, 25, and he wore the costume of Emperor Palpatine in his com- campaign for Odessa City Council. By the way, there was nearly 50 candidates in the election that used Star Wars names or names from 
uh, characters on the Star Wars films. Odessa has recently had a surge in Star Wars-related news after the statue of Vladimir Lenin was transformed into a Darth Vader last week. A man named Chewbacca, he, he lost uh, for city council. Uh, he was actually arrested while campaigning. Mm, it's sad. The emperor's election was decried by mayoral candidate Sasha Borovic in Facebook. By the way, she hates Star Wars and she can't understand, um, but she'll respect it. Okay, the choice of the people. The people have voted. We'll allow Emperor pa- Palpatine to come on in. Sad day. Sad day. By the way, it's also National Candy Day. We didn't make a big deal about that, but let's. we, we need to because, you know, after Halloween, I've realized that I don't have any more candy in my house, except I went up to wake my son up today, and he has like this tower of plastic containers full of candy. So before I wake him up every morning, I take a few out. I just call it a user fee. He's using my house. Anyway, good stuff. Uh, Yeah, it's the parent tax or the parent tithe, we call it. Hey, uh, we always like to end the show with a hero of the day. Harry Nevak is our hero today. He's an Alaskan village school worker. Nevak disarmed an upset teen who said he wanted to hunt the school's principal. Just after pulling up to school, Nevak spotted a 17-year-old from the village carrying what appeared to be a 22 caliber rifle. I assumed he was going to target practice down by the river, Nevak said. When I went towards the steps, he followed me. I knew right then that that he was going inside the building. Then I grabbed him on the chest. Nevak said he was able to get the rifle away and hold the teen down. The district, in recognizing Nevak's actions, said that the armed person said he wanted to kill a school employee, Susan Murphy, of Lower Kuskokswin, school board president, said someone might have died if not for the fast acting and thinking of Mr. Nevak. At the board meeting Friday, she presented him with a proclamation recognizing him as the hero for his selfless act of courage in averting another possible school shooting and the possible loss of life. So Harry Nevak an Alaskan village school worker. You are the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you, my friend, for looking out for the rest of us and having the courage to do what uh, many wouldn't dare do. And by the way, he thought the guy was going to just do some practice shooting down by the river. That's Alaska, my friends. We are out of here. Uh, The show is done. We couldn't do it without you. Again, if you want more information about us, go to byuradio.org. You can look me up on uh, Facebook as well. Um, also, go to uh, iTunes or tune in. Go to um, BYUradio.org if you want to get any of the podcasts. You can send those on to your friends. Until tomorrow, my friends, take care of each other, look after each other, and uh, make it a great one. We'll talk again tomorrow. <laughs>